Our previous transmission mode was too primitive to be received. I am now programming our computer to transmit lingua code at their frequency and rate of speed. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Oh, on the Starship Enterprise, there's someone who's in Satan's guise. Whose devil ears and devil eyes. What happened? The occipital area of my head seems to have impacted with the arm of the chair. I found this in the uh, Gunner room. Uh, uh, mirror at me. What is it? Well, it's, um... It's green. Mr. Spock has orders to kill you, Captain. He will succeed. Apparently. Not a magician, Spock. Just an old country doctor. Of course, Doctor. The Garden of Eden was just outside Moscow. A very nice place. Captain Kirk. Captain Kirk. I'm Captain Kirk! To boldly go where no man has gone before. Hello and welcome to Movie Phone. I'm sorry. What? Hello and welcome to Third Degree Burn. My name is Brian Hughes, and I am here with my fellow burnout, Tim Elliott. Say hi, Tim. Why don't you tell me the name of the movie you'd like to see? Oh, I Channel. Thought, I th- <laughs> no, we didn't rehearse that. <laughs> I thought we were doing the Seinfeld skit, but no. No. No, I, oh, am, I am, as Brian said, I am Tim Elliott, the other half of Third Degree Burn. Yeah, and... Uh, this episode, of course, is another in our continuing celebration of Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek uh, in the works of John Byrne. Correct. And Tim is going to regale us with the tale of Leonard McCoy, Frontier Doctor. Yes, I am. We are doing, as stated, we are doing, uh, this, again, this is our celebration for the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, which we're going to do all this year. And we are doing the last Star Trek work from John Byrne when he was working for IDW. He did a series of, I think he started with, was it the Romulans or was it the crew the first thing he did? My memory's you cheating know, on me. I'm always wrong, so I'm not even going <laughs> to. Anyway, he did, he did, he did, he did, he didn't do any of the crew proper. He did Romulans, he did uh, Assi- uh, Assignment Earth, which is based on the, the episode of the same name he did uh did he do a klingon he did that well the romulan ponds of war which had the klingons in it klingons in it um right. yeah and he oh, did the um the flip side of balance of terror he did the, the romulan version side of that so this is yeah but i think that was only in like the trade paperback i don't think it actually got a, a regular book publication itself. okay okay so, so you, you'd have to get the trade paperback that was Romulan Ponds of War or the John Byrne collection, which is what I'm going to be looking at as we go over the uh, the story today. As a, as am I, and it's it's really affordable. It collects all of his Star Trek stuff from IDW. 
I think you can pick it up at Amazon uh, for about thirty bucks, thirty-five. Now, if you do, there's sure you go there's two, two multiple freaks. versions of the of the the John Byrne collection, and there's the different price points on it, as oh. I understand. And what we've got here is one of the the middle or lower end versions, because apparently they got some really special stuff out there, and I haven't gotten to see all of it, but I was reading about that on one of the forums. Uh, well, um, for for thirty bucks, this is nice. The, the, the oh no, this paper's is, nice. This is, the color's good. It's yeah, it's 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 wonderful. It's beautiful. It doesn't have. I think there's some pullout stuff in the other stuff, but I hadn't seen all that in a more leather bound yeah. kind of tome rather than what we've got here, which is still a nice hard bound book and uh, beautiful beautiful uh, art on the outside with the ships of the fleet. Oh yeah, it's a nice design. It's not quite yeah. what I call an omnibus, but uh, it's yeah. still a nice a collection. Now, this comes after uh, Romulan Schism was the last thing he did before he did this series, which was a four-issue series. And this is the last drawn Star Trek work he did before he started doing the Fometi or photo novels uh, in 2013, which we've already covered the first one of those. No, we covered the annual or the first one. Yeah, I'm terrible at this, aren't I? We have covered a Fometi book on this show already as yeah. a previous Star Trek. So that being said, we are covering... Yes. Star Trek, The Nerd McCoy, Frontier Doctor, Issue 1. Uh, as stated, publisher is IDW. Uh, published date is April 2010. The writer-artist-inker is Mr. John Byrne. The colorist is Laverne Kanzerski. Letter is Neil Yutaki, if I'm pronouncing yep. that right. Editor okay. is Chris Rial. It is 22 pages. Uh, it had three different covers. There was one... One is a cover of McCoy in his traditional TOS uniform. You're looking at his back, and he's looking at a group of all these strange aliens, including a Romulan and a Klingon, and he's holding up his old medical scanner, and he says, next. Uh, there's another one that were the series of, it was him in his motion pictures type, or I think maybe the more the uniform from this issue, and there's a different alien on a table, and they're telling him what you know what what ails them. Uh, and they also put out a special cover that Byrne did for the Diamond Retailer Summit at the 2010 uh, Chicago Comic Entertainment Expo, or C2E2, that had uh, a diamond, coal, uh, diamond foil cover. Now, the only thing that came out at the same time, this is the only original artwork that came out the same month, but the same month they reprinted his work with uh, John Romita Jr., in a trade paperback, which is Armor Wars 2, Iron Man Armor Wars 2, which covers issues 258 through 266. Now, that came out as a trade paperback. All right. Are we ready to get into a synopsis? You got any questions before we uh, jump into this? Well, I'm trying to figure out the um, the uh, time frame on this. Now, based on the, the uniform and everything, what's going on here, it's definitely you know right before Star Trek The Motion Picture. And um, so it's what two or three years after, or just a few years after the series proper ended. Well, and the, the five year mission ended, or did they did you know, did they state in canon that they did a second five year mission? They did not. The only according to a Wiki, the uh, motion picture takes place in twenty two seventy three, and I think the the generally approved timeline for Trek is the original series started in twenty two sixty six. And ran, well, obviously 66, 67, 68, 69, which is the same year as it came out in the actual TV show. 
So I think there was five. Of course, now we don't know if that was the very beginning. We don't know how how far into the five year mission they were when we see that first episode. So right. uh, I think on the synopsis of this on the Memory Alpha, it's listing this around for this issue around twenty two seventies, which would put it, uh, you know, maybe a year or two before the motion picture. Because mm. Kirk states in the motion picture that he has been chief of Starfleet. Operations. operations for three and a half years. Mm. So okay, it's I would say between between two, 20, 20, 2270 and twenty two seventy three, around that era. Yeah, my least favorite Star Trek uniforms were the motion picture uniforms. I I think his admiral outfit, which we we're going to see in this, and that you first see Kirk and he's wearing that kind of white and kind of a medium gray. That is yeah, a nice sharp the- look. Uh, to me, it looks like he's wearing pajamas and he's got a uh, like a fanny pack or um, a, a thing to hold ivory soap <laughs> because he looks so clean in that, you know. But again, that's, you know, just a personal thing. Uh, the, the, the the uniforms that they developed in, you know, for the Wrath of Khan, I just thought were so awesome. And of course, I always liked what they wore in the original series. Oh, um, the original series is great. It, they're much more militaristic. Than yes. the than motion picture and they kind of that that whole movie is muted mm. tones. Uh, there's there's not as much a differentiation between the the different uh, classes like engineering, science, right. command as there were in the original series. Or and actually, when you go back into the Wrath of Khan, that's kind of dropped because it's just by the collar of their inner shirt or their collar. The dicky. The dicky. Yeah. yeah. So that they're all wearing that's much more militaristic without yeah. wearing that kind of wraparound jacket. Yeah, but yeah, I just, I just, again, when they go into the light blue, you know, tunic that most everybody wore, I, I just felt like they were walking around at a slumber party. They do look a lot. It's the untucked look. It's the untucked shirt tail out, uh, boots kind of made into the bottom of their jumpers. They look like onesies, a little. I think with some tweaking. They could, they could be. Uh, well, I mean, next gen. Their first two seasons are certainly look like onesies. Yeah, I, I again, you know, those I, I didn't care much for, but I, I, I actually like those over these uh, any day, and I even like the ones they wore in Enterprise more. So I think those actually fit better as far as you know what they were doing. I like and, the I like I like the Enterprise outfits a lot. They're like kind of yeah. like working. Uh, like a, what they would call a union suit, like a working uh, coveralls. Yeah, yeah. So let's take a break, and we'll play a promo, and we'll come back, and I will get right into my synopsis. Okay, we'll be back in two and two. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jason Giaconetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? Other robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. 
Holler if you hear me. And we're back. All right, let's and see if we can put these two kids together. Oh, we're not, <laughs> we're not doing that. No, no, no. I'm, uh, I, I, you know, just actually sang the Star Spangled Banner in my head, though. <laughs> not sure. the Whitney Houston version, um, just uh, the real quick and dirty baseball stadium, two minutes, two seconds version. Oh, I thought you were quoting Chuck Willery. <laughs> well, I, you know, that's the thing. He would always say we're coming back in two and two. Two and two. And that was, that was how long it takes to, takes to sing the Star Spangled Banner if you're doing it the quick version. Oh, okay. Quick, did, quick and dirty. Did not know that. And so that's what I always thought it was. And back in um, the late 80s, early 90s, I was asked to write an, uh, some articles for a role-playing magazine. I don't even remember what it was called. And so I was doing uh, a series of stories on – the Star Trek role-playing game and Starfleet Battles. And so I started each story with a, uh, a, a, a written story, you know, out a uh, Starship crew. And, you know, like this, the role-playing game, I did a an away mission mm-hmm. situation where they, they actually came across a, a new life form. And then the Starfleet Battles, I actually did a... Uh, a battle with a Federation starship against a Klingon battlecruiser. And um, there's this point where they've basically got a trap set up against the Klingons and the Klingons are underway. And the captain says, how long till they get here? And someone says two minutes and two seconds. And he goes, great. <laughs> Anybody know the words to star spangled banner? And uh, it's just, golly, I don't know what bring, you know, brings up these little things and nobody's going to care about it. But well, that reminds, anyway. that reminds me kind of Hudson Hawk because his gimmick is that he sings oh, songs right. to time whatever he's doing when he's robbing the place. <laughs> yeah, you're swinging on a star. Yeah. Amen, oh, man. Yes. You know, can you believe it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually enjoyed that movie. You know, uh, sadly, though, I'm having a hard time enjoying Willis movies these days. And, you know, just his stars kind of fallen on me as far as, you know, all the stuff I've been I, – I don't want to read these stories. I don't want to hear that the man's not a nice person, but I keep hearing that he's not a nice guy. Uh, I can – I just separate that out and don't worry about I'm watching him do his craft and I enjoy that. If he's kind of a jerk, you know, in his spare time, then nothing you do yeah. about that. You know, it's, I, I can still watch Die Hard though. I don't have a problem with that one. Man, I miss Alan Rickman. Oh, yeah, we kept we kept saying he was. Uh, he they should have brought him on Game of Thrones in some role. Did you know that um, they were going to make a sequel to Galaxy Quest? No, I did not know that. They were in the writing stages of it, um, and they were getting everybody lined up to do it. And then, of course, you know, Alan Rickman passed away, and they just said, "There's no way we're going to do this without Alan Rickman." No, that's and, fair. That, that's and, a yeah, shame. That, that is really a shame because that that yeah. is. That is a it's wonderful a, film. It's a wonderful Trek film. Uh, you know, it's probably one of the better Trek films in, in a lot of ways. But, I mean, you know, as as it is for itself, it's almost a perfect little movie. I mean, there's very few movies you can say that about. But that but that is a perfect little movie. And, and uh, you know, one of the things I really enjoy about it is seeing, like, Justin Long as a little kid. <laughs> as kind of nobody. That, yeah, that was great. Well, what okay. makes it, well, well, I'll tell you this real quick. And I'm cribbing this from another podcast, so I'm not gonna not gonna present this as my original thought. But uh, for because that's a parody, and for parody to work, it has to not only parody what it's parodying, but it also has to 
work as a standalone movie. And that works as a parody of Star Trek, but if Star Trek didn't exist, that still works as a great film on its own. So that's why that's... Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. We are getting so sidetracked. <laughs> it's it's Friday right. and it's late, so, you know. Yes. All right. I'm going to take everything as read. Our story is called... This is, again, issue one. It is called Weeds. And here we go. Our story opens in a high-rise office in what we can assume is San Francisco because we see Admiral Kirk sitting at his desk studying a holographic image of the refit at USS Enterprise 1701. Based on this, we can assume this story takes place sometime before Star Trek, the motion picture. And as we stated, we think it's about 2070, 2071, too. Something like that. Uh, a young lieutenant enters his office and hands him an envelope from a special courier. She tells him the scans indicate that it is a handwritten document. Kirk smiles. He knows the only person who could send him a handwritten letter is his former Starfleet doctor, Leonard McCoy. He pours a glass of saurian brandy and settles in to read his old friend's letter. We cut to Dr. McCoy. Dr. McCoy, after leaving Starfleet, has signed on for the Federation, the Federation Frontier Medical Program. So basically he's left Starfleet. He's partnered with a young doctor named John Duncan, and their first adventure is, is noted, and their first adventure of note is a visit to an Andorian colony on Omicron Testis IV. Having saved the Prime Minister's pregnant wife and unborn child, McCoy and Duncan board their vintage starship, Joanna, named after McCoy's daughter. Cranky as ever, argues with the ship's computer overbearing computer as they go to warp. They are buffeted as the ship becomes suddenly becomes unstable. Duncan notes that the ship must be carrying too much weight because these old ships have to balance their weight precisely or the warp field becomes unstable. He suspects they may have a stowaway. He scans for the intruder and gets a kicked in his face for his troubles. A young blue-skinned Andorian girl leaps from her hiding spot. She immediately goes on the offensive, threatening McCoy and Duncan with a knife. She is Thela of the House Trelan, and she will and she will be shown respect. Knife at his throat, McCoy wants to know who the hell she is. Duncan jabs her in the leg with a hypospray, and it's good night for our blue hue, our blue hue princess. McCoy, wanting no more complications in his life, life asks the computer to determine their position so they can return Thela to her people. The computer refuses because it has picked up a distress signal from a nearby Earth colony of Ophicus III, and Federation law requires they respond. They orbit an agricultural Earth colony settled 59 years ago on the outer rim of the Federation. As they land, they notice the entire planet is covered in thick vegetation, except around the border of the colony where the plant life is dead, or dying. They land and are greeted by colony supervisor Lars Vandernet. McCoy asks Vandernet if his people can take Thela off his hands until an Andorian ship can retrieve her. He agrees and takes the doctor over to their hospital. He explains that several of their workers around the fence are suffering from a fungus-like infection. Fence, McCoy asks. Vanderbilt shows the doctor the fence, a towering techno wall on wheels that surrounds the colony. When the colony needs to expand, they simply drive the support posts forward, which are on big tracks, expanding the diameter of the colony like a balloon filling with air. The fence, as it expands, sprays defoliant foam all around its base, killing the vegetation. McCoy asks, asks how the Federation allows the use of this defoliant but out here on the rim, you gotta do what you gotta do, and the rules are a little more lax. And there's no animal life, according to Vandernet, around on this planet. It's just it's just plant life. 
McCoy wanted to see where the workers first contracted the infection, takes a skimmer along with one of the fence supervisors and they fly over the fence for a closer inspection. McCoy sees what looks like birds, but again Vandernet explains they are seed pods, not animal life. In the next panel we see some of that vegetation up close. Giant shambling mounds are attacking the base of the wall. Vandernet says they are the walking roots of the Jampala trees, who migrate from time to time during the dry season. They are not normally hostile, and angry McCoy wants to save these unprotected workers who are spraying the defoliant at the advancing roots. And a squad of skimmers armed with phaser rifles arrive and start blasting the roots. Duncan notices that the plants around these roots are reacting to the phaser fires if they can feel the pain, the same pain as the roots. We cut to the local brig where Thela is cooling her heels behind bars. She is complaining to her jailer she does not want to go home when the Andorian colony ship arrives. She's about to offer her male captor something the comics code would never allow for her freedom when he feels faint and then does. She reaches for his key as they cut back to Dr. McCoy. McCoy and the others others are, 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 are overloading their skimmers rescuing the workers on the ground. McCoy asks if the walking roots could be intelligent but Vandernet assures him they are not. The roots break through the fence and slowly make their way into the colony and then suddenly stop. A call comes in that the infection has spread and all 15,000 colonists are in danger. People are dropping left and right. McCoy has a theory about the infection when he discovers that only humans are affected and not the colony livestock. He begins to explain to Duncan, he explains to explain when Duncan falls ill, rushing to the more advanced med bay aboard their starship, which is full of burn tech medical equipment. Knowing he will succumb to the infection soon himself, McCoy races to find a cure. A few tests and some technobabble later, and McCoy determines the plant vegetation is a single life form, not separate, separate plants. This gives him the edge he needs to save the day. But before he can tell, Van, uh, before he can tell Vandernet, before he can tell Vandernet collapses. The infection is mutating, and the humans are being affected at a faster rate, including a good doctor who now has growth on his hand. Marking how fast the infection is mutating, a gun-wielding Thela demands transportation off the planet. McCoy has no time for foolishness, and slapping the gun from her hand, he convinces slash screams at her to help him find a cure. Reluctant at first, she acts as McCoy's hands, running tests, checking computers, finding answers. By the end, she actually begins to enjoy helping the doctor. Eureka, they have found a cure. She sprays Duncan with the antidote, and the fungus begins to fall away. Soon, the two recovered doctors are crop dusting the entire colony with their newly found antidote. Now, now play the happy ending music. Gonna crack my knuckles and jump for joy. I got a clean bill of health from Dr. McCoy. <laughs> <laughs> a grateful Vandernet praises McCoy for all his help and even commissions a commemorative medal in his name. But McCoy tells him not to break out the space champagne because he had to report the situation to the Federation and the feds were probably not like the way the colony has been treating the plant life, the, plant, the planet-wide organism. Epilogue. The Andorian ship arrives ready to take home Thela but a good doctor is not too happy. The Andorians tell him that Thela is a member of a very powerful house, and McCoy is politely asked to let her stay with him and Duncan. He's a doctor, not a babysitter, damn it. He doesn't want a spoiled brat cluttering up his ship. But a sincere Thela asks to stay. She is tired of the luxury her name entitles her, and she wants a chance to have some adventure. The doctor grudgingly accepts and walks away knowing he might regret it later. Well, I bet you forgot this all started with Captain Kirk reading a letter, didn't you? Captain? Excuse me, Admiral Kirk. Admiral. 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 <laughs> well, 
<laughs> See what you did to me. Or Kirk sets the letter on his desk, puts away the brandy, and says goodnight to the lieutenant, knowing his friend just might start enjoying himself if he's not too careful. The end. Play happy Star Trek music. Very nice synopsis. Very, very succinct. Thank you. Yeah. You, you covered everything in the story that needed definitely needed to be covered. That's a long synopsis for a 22-page story. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I was surprised uh, going back to look this over to see as much of Jim Kirk in it as we see. Um, you know, we've talked about this before, how Byrne doesn't like to do licensed characters that much because he doesn't like having to sit there and keep going from the likenesses. Now, when he did Kirk here, and I was, I was sitting there doing a little bit of reading on it, um, he definitely, uh, he even, he basically, he traced him from photographs. And I, I had, I actually have a little trouble with it myself uh, based on the era that it's in. But uh, in the case of McCoy, since he knew he was going to be a lot of panels, he just created his own model for McCoy rather than doing the uh, photo referencing that he would do with like Mark Leonard or, or, or other characters that, uh, you know, he recreated for the books. Yeah. Well, the, his McCoy is, is great. It's, yes. it's a great representation of McCoy and it looks like McCoy and it's, it's yeah. a little more, and you'll notice if you ever try to do artists that do kind of photo referencing or even, you know, I don't want to say tracing, but they are limited to what that photo is doing. And in this case, Byrne is not limited what he can have McCoy do, but it always looks like, D. Kelly. I think he did a wonderful job. Yeah, I, I think he did. Uh, you know, he developed a, what I call a McCoy shorthand. And um, so, it, and the beard, of course, uh, made it that helps easy, easy on that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, I, I, I actually found his Kirk a little off to me because I remember Kirk from the motion picture being like zero body fat. And so his face was real taut. And of course, he had the permed hair, which also, you know, gave him a fresh out of the shower look, especially when he was wearing like his polo shirt or what he, golfing shirt yeah. that he wore sometimes in the episode uh, in the movie. But uh, obviously, he's just wearing the pajamas here. But I love this this opening picture there in the office in San Francisco. It's we've got a yeah we've got some good burn tech. I love the city in the background. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the little holograph. That he's looking at. I don't want, I want that kind of workstation in my job. Yes. He's got a couple pads, which look like the pads from Next Gen. Mm-hmm. And then the the the, the, op, the officer in there with him, that uh, the lieutenant, that doesn't look like anybody I've ever seen before. I don't. She just looks like a. She just looks like a burn girl. Now I do think, and I made a note of this that her hairstyle. I thought it would be nice if he. That doesn't look like a nineteen. 79 hairstyle, which is the year this, the movie came out, which is what this, you know, the Kirk's face is based on. I it does it, to me. It, think it, it does? Yeah, it does a Sandy Duncan, except brown. It's Sandy Duncan's hair, but brown. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to say just, that wrong. It, that just struck me as I thought, and I'm not the best that's going to be able to, I'm not uh, someone who's aware of hairstyles, so. But that just struck me as I thought that if it was maybe I expected her to have longer hair or pulled back or in a bun or well, not a bun. Were you, just pulled were you back. thinking of were you thinking of Dorothy Hamill? Maybe. See now you've got me. Now you're shaking me, man. Now you're making me. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, I'm, I'm, trying, 
It's okay. I'm not really trying to mess with your head there. No, no, no. It's okay. You know, it's just, you know, that's just, and it's right or wrong. It's just kind of an impression I get, you know, it's like, oh, well, this is, you know, kind of what popped into my head when I was looking at it. But, and on the, the next page, if you, on that splash page, the upper right corner, that's the only page that really looks photo referenced. That one looks like he really put a photo in there and kind of traced it or, because the rest look like he is just trying to characterize Kirk. Right, but that one where he's you know he's telling about the about he knows who would give him that handwritten letter, that looks like that looks like Shatner. Yep. And the uh, mm. this, this you know so he sits down to read his his letter, which I thought was uh, I had another note was how did this letter? I know they're trying to I think sometimes they go overboard with the kind of anti tech uh, uh, ideas that they want to put on McCoy. I don't think he was ever anti-tech. He was just anti-transporter, which he didn't like the fact of his atoms scattered all over the all over uh, the galaxy. But he never seemed to shy away from uh, any, you know, help helpful tech or anything. He wasn't reacting to it in that way. And they, I think this is a little. I mean, it's kind of a cute way to introduce it, and it helps book yeah. in the story that he's reading his actual handwritten uh, letter. But how did that? Was you think this was carried from ship to ship? Was it beamed from ship to ship? How did it make its way from the frontier back to San Francisco? Well, Starfleet definitely has to have a mail call type situation, and it's just like you know in in any military situation where you have boats or planes or whatever that there are transports that go back and forth. Yeah, and and you know transfer physical material that you probably couldn't do. And, you know, through a transporter or, you know, whatever other situation, you know, it's just like McCoy getting Romulan ale, you know, for, through the, from a border ship, yeah. you know, for medicinal purpose, yeah. purposes. But, you know, it, it's a similar thing. I mean, it, the post office still has to run even in, you know, the 2200s. I think what happened was they he handed this to somebody and said, OK, I want this delivered to James, James Kirk, Admiral Kirk on, you know, chief of Starfleet operations. San Francisco, and whoever takes it and says that's going to take forever, so he takes it, he scans it, sends it through subspace to Earth, where somebody reprints it. They stick it in an envelope, <laughs> they give it to her, and go, "Hey, this is showed up. It's handwritten." Because you know, by then the technology that would they could easily mimic handwritten documents. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose, but you know, Mac Murdock wouldn't be able to read the faint impressions of ink on the page. If they just scanned it like that. <laughs> no, he'd have to have a, a Geordie type visor. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Moving on. <laughs> and then, so Kirk sits down with some brandy, which I thought the decanter is not quite what it looked like in the uh, original series episode. No, one. The, the, the curved ones that you, you can actually buy today. Yeah. Um, because they were using something that that was being made then that they just thought looked alien enough. It looks it it looks similar, but it's not. I, I guess Bird didn't want to be too uh, winky winky and and give us the exact. You know, maybe Kirk had kept it all these years. You know. Well, it, it's funny because it looks different from what you see when he's pulling it out of there versus what lo- looks like on the last page. It, it yeah, seems it does. Be, it looks like it does change. It because it looks a little bit more curvaceous. When you first see it there, and then when you see it later, even the handle's a little different. The, the handle's more angular and mm-hmm. such. So, yeah, the consistency there's just a little little off. 
Isn't it funny how that stuff is when, when Star Trek, they were producing an episode and they told a production assistant or somebody said, hey, we got to have some kind of futuristic bottle. Go find something. He goes, okay, I'll, I'll grab this. Like he goes to Walmart or someplace equivalent and just find something that looks, this will work. And that becomes so iconic 50 years later that people are buying replicas. Well, it's like the the coffee and tea mugs that they used on Next Generation. I, I was working in housewares at Dillard's at the time when the show came out, and we actually had that set of the coffee and tea, and it actually was it was a, a, basically a personal coffee filtration system. Mm-hmm. And it had those those uh, glasses that had the, the metal bands that went around them to the metal handle. Do, do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's like I'd bought a set of those, and of course they all got you know broken to move or something over the years. And I, I think I may have one piece of it left somewhere around here. Well, it's but. like the Tupperware glasses that Luke drinks his blue milk from in Star <laughs> yes. Wars. I mean, we as we we had those because it oh yeah the ones we had is a little cap that fits on it, and you could close it almost like a little drink container. And we're like, hey, we, those are Tupperware. We've got <laughs> we've got yeah them. we. We would get the orange. We would get the cans of concentrated orange juice, and we would make them in the in that container every day. Mm-hmm. And then we would all drink. You know, that's how we all drank our orange juice was out of that container. So when they had the blue milk, I was like thinking, well, we have the orange juice. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was, <laughs> I was right there with Star Wars. <laughs> all right, back to McCoy. We see uh, as a, as Kirk is settling in, we we kind of see what he's reading and. We see uh, Duncan and McCoy. We the first introduction to Duncan. He's on the uh, not the Andorian homeworld, but it's a colony. Mm-hmm. And these are classic Andorians. Are not you know, these are ne- uh, original series Andorians, not the ones we see later. in. Uh, we see him a couple in the films, and of course we see him uh, more extensively with, with Shrek in, uh, in Enterprise, where they have the antennas on the forehead instead of uh, on the back of the head. I think we saw a variation of that actually in the story. You know, the ones that you see towards the end. There are, right? right. It looks like there yeah. are different casts of, of Andorians. And and we know that even from Enterprise because there are two. His daughter is, uh, they're the ones that live up in the, the frozen poles or wherever they live that are slightly different than the standard Andorian. Right. What did you, uh, <laughs> we first see the, him talking to the, uh, I guess, the prime minister. I had a note, and it's kind of, if you look to the rest of this book, does nobody wear shoes in the future? Everybody is in boots. Yeah. I was, I was sitting there saying boots and high-water pants. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. if you're going to wear boots, you're going to have to either tuck them in, or you're going to have that little flare. Now, there's that one guy, the one Andorian on the far left, that almost looks kind of Romulan-ish. Uh, and it's just the way his hair mm-hmm. is done. It, it almost looks like the helmet that the, the, the Romulans wore, yeah. would wear. And and then he doesn't seem to be wearing boots. He seems to have pants, um, almost bell bottoms, right, uh, <laughs> coming down there. But still, it, you know, it doesn't look bad. But uh, it does show you know the differentiation there. Um, and I like when when they put McCoy in you know the vest and stuff like this because McCoy from the movies uh, on you know up through Star Trek Six. You know, D. Kelly was a, was a lot thinner mm-hmm. there than 
than he was in a TV series. And it showed unless they put him in the monster maroon or you put a vest or something on him like this. So I, I, I'm glad that Byrne, you know, used that with him a lot. Of course, when he drew him outside of it, he didn't make him as thin as D. Kelly appeared. No, I mean, look at look at him and uh, Search for Spock when he's got that kind of his civilian outfit. He's got the little jacket. He really looks just sl- like really looks slim. Yes. Yeah, very very slim, and he, yeah. and he had that even in the motion picture. He was he was even that, yeah, he that, was, that slim there. He didn't um, he didn't he didn't go down the doing route. No, <laughs> no. Now, what do you think of this of this of the Joanna, the, the actual ship itself, or it being yeah. named the Joanna? The the ship itself. Now, I I've not seen this model of ship used before. Is this a burn creation? I I can answer that. It looks like it might be. I I'm not familiar with it. it doesn't look like. I mean, it, it doesn't match anything I'd seen in any of the, of the Okuda re- released materials that came out that, that showed the Star Trek timelines because they, they always went on the variation of the primary hull, secondary hull, uh-huh. and, you know, the warp nacelles. And it seemed like, you know, like when you look at the – I forget uh, – they had a very early Starship representation where it was one big ball and a that's can. A, that's a Daedalus class. The Daedalus class, yeah. And then when they showed in the very last episode of Next Gen, uh, Beverly Crusher's vessel, uh, it was a variation of the Daedalus right. class just brought up to Next Gen standards, and I thought that was kind of cool. But I, I don't recall ever seeing one like this. Now, I, they, they did show one variation of uh, Zephyrin Cochran's vessel, and there was something that was like a little – it came a little bit after that. That could have been a bit like this, I, I suppose. This look, I mean, it has it has chemical rockets, which that was my other note. It's like, how old is this uh, ship? I mean, it's obviously, unless it's been retrofitted with the nacelles, it, the warp cells, it doesn't, I don't know any other Starfleet vessel that actually has, even the ones that can land on a planet have actual chemical rockets. I mean, I assume they're running off the impulse engines, the thrusters, or some type of ion yeah, well, gas, see- maybe, or... This has always bothered me whenever you're dealing with some sort of chemical propulsion uh, that isn't something that's, you know, like self-repeating. Like, you know, in, in Star Trek, they'd always talked about deuterium tanks and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the the the, the collectors uh, for the engines are actually pulling in hydrogen or, or helium through Hydro- space. Hydrogen, I think. The buzz art yeah. collectors. Yeah. And so – you know that there was something in there, but you never saw any kind of exhaust uh, plasma, as Uhura would say, or, or or whatever you're talking about. Or Spock, I'm sorry, Spock would say. Um, whenever you're dealing with with a chemical uh, propulsion, you there has to be a, a large amount of fuel to be used, and you know, shit like that. When you're sitting there talking about traveling light years or However far, there's just not enough fuel to sit there and provide that laws of well, physics. It, yeah, it seems yeah, like just, it has the these chemical rockets are used just as almost boosters, just to get it into in and out of orbit off the planet or out of orbit, so that the, mm-hmm. the warp cells can take over. But I think I think you're right. You'd have to basically refill these every trip. You know, you yes. have to stop. You'd have to get more fuel. I think that line Burn puts it in as just gives us an idea that's his way of saying this is an old ship. Yeah. Yes. And I like the idea that, that, you know, because they had the stowaway, it threw off the balance. I, I want to ask you about that. Cause that, I thought that was, I thought that was kind of cool. I like the Doppler effect at the, at the top where the engine is stretching out. 
Yeah. But his, and I kind of like the idea that this could throw off an older ship because maybe their warp uh, nacelles aren't quite as finely tuned. But, okay, let's play this out how this works. If this ship, before it can go into warp, has to know exactly what its weight is. So if there's extra weight, even probably 98 pounds from this girl, 105 pounds, uh-huh. it'll throw it off. So that right. means if the computer, which obviously can't detect her, or so it would detect the weight, it would, it would, if it knows how much these two men weigh and how what they brought on board, it would detect, oh, warning, we've got excess of 100 pounds or whatever. If it can't, doesn't have any kind of internal sensors that'll detect that so that Duncan has to actually physically scan for Thela, then these guys have got, if it's down to the, he says it's down to the last gram. These guys have got to be careful about about what they eat because if they go and they put on a pound or two and they come on board, if they're not weighing themselves before they go to warp, then this is going to happen all the time. Well, this is a, actually a, a fairly common thing with pilots today where they have to sit there and gauge the weight of every single thing. They have to gauge the weight of their fuel tanks. You know, they don't just sit there and say, how much, you know, how many gallons are in the fuel tanks? How much do the fuel tanks weigh is, is what they do. And they have to do a lot of fast math to sit there and figure out their courses and everything. And so there's been a number of science fiction stories and there was even TV shows. I want to say it was Twilight Zone or one of those that was uh, popular in the late 80s or early 90s where they had a spaceship that was needing to travel somewhere and this guy's little sister or little brother had uh, stowed away on board and because they stowed away on board they threw the ship off course they could make a course correction but they were going to have to get they were going to have to kick somebody off the ship they were going to have to to space somebody and it had to be the stowaway Hmm. because it was it was like sensitive medical equipment it had to get to the planet had to get there by a certain time and if they didn't get rid of the extra weight the ship was never going to make it to the planet. It was going to go off into, you know, far off and they wouldn't be able to make it. So, I I mean, this, this right here is the kind of stuff that I'm familiar with in a lot of science fiction stories. I've seen it a number of times where, yeah, the weight's off a little bit and it'll throw everything off. And uh, Shane Johnson, who wrote Mr. Scott's Guide to the Enterprise, he did a story uh, called Plato's Stepchildren. No, no, no that, that was the um, Destiny's Stepchild. That's right. That's what it was called. Where uh, he, basically when they were attempting to test a new transwarp or a new type of warp vessel, uh, the weight was off a little bit. And that is actually what caused the explosion of Praxis hmm. for Star Trek VI. Interesting. Yeah. I, I understand the science behind it. It just seems out of place to me, out of place in Star Trek. I understand they're trying to to let us know this is an older ship and it creates a lot of drama and it lets them it's a it's a story device that lets allows us to because if this didn't happen they might never know that Thela was on board but i mean look at apollo 13 you know that whole, when they're coming back in they are actually light because they didn't pick up any moon rocks so they have to adjust for that when they're coming back in but yeah i think this time this this day and age well in star trek that this seems like a problem that shouldn't happen no, I, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying and, and, and I understand it, but I, 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 it's one of those things where I'm familiar with, you know, the, the whole weight fuel ratio thing. So I, 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 I'm going to let it go. I mean, I, it's, 
to me, it's another, it's one of those cool things. And it's good to see that Burns sitting there trying to think about all these things. Yeah, I, I didn't think that. it necessarily yeah. is a device, but I mean, yeah, it does work that way. Um, we even saw that in um, Bruce Willis' movie, Fifth Element, when Father, uh, the, the, the priest, snuck aboard the, the spaceship. They, but they still took off. They didn't have a problem with. No, they didn't have a problem taking off. It, it, they, they were used to these kind of interruptions. So it's like they just figured it was the the parasites or something else had gotten in there. But they were able to detect it at least. And, you know, someone goes, ah, I'll take care of it. And whoop, it's a man. <laughs> well, even here in the, in the panel, this third panel in the middle, when McCoy says, uh, what the devil happened? And Duncan says, excess weight, the computer said. An old ship like this has to have has to calculate its payload to the last gram. Again, yeah. I can understand it throwing the, the 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 engines off, but if the computer can tell there's excess weight, don't you think it would run through that? If this was that important, it would run through that before I th- I it think, would go. It would couldn't go to warp if if the weight wasn't accounted right, for. I or think balanced. his statement that it has to have the payload to the last gram is is an exaggeration. Uh, that may be hyperbole. Yeah, yeah. I, I get I get that. I get that. So yeah, but no, it's it's a good point. It's a good point. I I don't like his tricorder. It looks like he's about to play poker. <laughs> well, it looks like he's trying to bridge uh, next gen with. Yeah. It looks a lot like the uh, next gen tricorders, but yeah, it does look like he's <laughs> or he's fixed to change the channel. Mm-hmm. Now the Andorian girl, um, she looks familiar to me. I mean, the, the the facial model that he's got for her, and even the body model uh, with that that outfit where it's off the shoulders. Um, really is ringing some memory bell of mine and I just can't seem to figure out you know what or who it is I've seen that off the shoulder look is kind of I've seen you're right it looks familiar to me too but I, I, I couldn't pinpoint who or what it just maybe maybe it's a combination of a lot of burn women it's just a, maybe something we've seen before well the, the off the shoulder thing on both shoulders like that the only time I can think of seeing that was Chris Tucker in fifth element <laughs> 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 but, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, th- no, but there's something very, very familiar about her. And it's driving me crazy here trying to figure out, you know, who or what, you know, that she is. Maybe, maybe, uh, you know, it's like I, I, I didn't dig far enough to see if he mentioned, you know, anything about that particular model. But uh, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I love McCoy's expression when he says, defend yourself. Who the hell are you? That's what I was saying that he he's not limited to an actual photo because there's a lot of energy, a lot of expression in him screaming, but it still looks like D Kelly. Yeah. And that allows him to, to be much more expressive without having to limit himself to, uh, actual photos and have to work from that. What do you think of her outfit? You think, uh, the Endorians don't wear much, you know, a little skimpy. It's a little cut kind of high. Well, learning what we learn about her, I think uh, it, it, it's it's not a surprise. Again, the off-the-shoulder thing, you know, he's definitely trying to go for a sexy element here. Mm-hmm. He's definitely trying to sit there and say, this is a sexy girl, blue skin and all. Um, you know, she's got the Jessica Alba cleavage thing, though, you know. Um, well, I'll, I'll say this. He doesn't, he doesn't go crazy and make her too voluptuous. Right. I mean, she's right. curvy, but he he hasn't gone overboard to make. Yeah, it and, that, and that's that's why I think I I, I said Jessica Alba because it, yeah. it it made me think of Jessica Alba in, in that re, in that regard. 
though whatever model he's using for her is uh i mean it's a little bit of of marie no not even not even that i i was thinking for a moment marina from alpha flight but not even that I, i'm still yeah, trying to see that out I see, yeah i don't see that from she just looks like like kind of like a burn girl to me i can't uh yeah except in yeah. the except in the uh panel where she's being tranquilized i don't know what is going on there that is such a odd expression, expression. it's almost <laughs> comical like she's like Doo! and yeah. she's falling into duncan's arms that is just yeah, now the the bottom shot of the ship doesn't that look like it's got a lot of, a lot of styrofoam cups tucked onto the back over the engines? <laughs> that was my. It's like he's got a ton. That's all those chemical rockets he has to have. This thing must yeah. get lousy gas mileage. Yeah, but I interrupted you. What were you about to say? Oh, I was just saying. I thought his McCoy's. There's hints of his in Space Seed when McCoy stands up to. Khan. When Khan's awake and McCoy comes in, he grabs a knife and McCoy just basically says, well, if you're going to cut my throat, you know, I suggest you cut this artery. You know, he just really doesn't take any of it. And that's kind of reminiscent of this. She's got his, her, her knife to his neck and he's like, well, you know, I'm not going to, uh, uh, you know, I'll, you know, I'll kick you out of the airlock if you don't behave yourself. So he's not, yeah. you know, he's not, he's not, he's just sticking up to her. Right. Right. Cause McCoy has always been an ornery cuss. And I always wondered if that was why if why Byrne decided to choose McCoy. Is it one, because as we've established in uh, the motion picture that he had left Starfleet, so it gives him a lot of free reign to kind of tell stories uh, not necessarily involving Starfleet like he does in these. Is it because Coy is kind of a curmudgeon like Byrne is, a self you know, a self admitted curmudgeon? Is it that he yeah. feels a little uh, uh little uh a little acerbic uh, exactly he feels uh a kind of a kindred spirit that's what i was trying to think between him and mccoy or maybe because mccoy's his favorite character you know i don't, I, hmm. I don't know now that that panel on the bottom again you know i, I sit there and I, I keep going back to it and i like it but at the same time there are too many bodies there i mean are all those moons of that planet or is that one a moon of the other, you know, of the other planet? You know, uh, I never that's, noticed that. That is a lot of moons, and especially yeah. two of them are too close together. Way, way. I mean, they're all way too close in proximity if they're orbiting that planet. That planet. But I mean, you know, I understand he's trying to to make a something that's a little busy so he doesn't have just open space uh, underneath. Right. But he he probably could have done something else if he didn't just do the white star field. Well, he could. But I think I, he could have taken that large moon. On the left, and just left that, and eliminated the other the other three. Yeah, but and then and then seeing on the planet itself, the uh, the farmed area, how that is. I mean, when you when you yeah, I know from from space you can see like the Great Wall of China, and you can see the cities based on all the the starscapes and whatnot. But that's I don't know that that that'd be really hard to see something like that from from space. Well, and I don't think the colony is that. I mean, there's only fifteen thousand people there. I don't think the colony is that big, right? Uh, or they are very close uh, within the atmosphere to be able, like you said, to see that because that looks like that could be hundred miles across. This brings up another thing that's always bugged me in Star Trek, and that is, here comes the Joanna, and it's coming in, and it, I'm assuming that it is going to get into a standard orbit, right? Uh, yeah, I would think so. But if it's coming into the planet like this, well, actually, it's not standard orbit because it's actually going to go down and land. It's land, right. It's coming in upside down. 
which I guess would be right side up. No, no, it's, it's upside down there. They would actually have to flip the ship in order for it to land on the planet. I mean, well, I guess might. as it's coming in and it'll come straight down and it'll turn up at the, you know, as, as they get closer to the planet. But, you know, when you look at Star Trek, the TV series, the motion picture, any of the movies or anything, when the starships come up to a planet and they get in orbit, the, the actual ship is perpendicular to the planet rather than, you know, it's not, you, you, you'd think that they'd have both nacelles and the primary hull and secondary hull where the planet is beneath it. But they always have the ship sideways. Yeah, I see what you mean. That, that, I think that's just. I think that's just storytelling. That's just. The yeah, way it's it for makes the, it look it's, better. It's for the beauty shot. Yeah, yeah. I know. It's just. Uh, it, it's one of those observations that that I've I've made every you know it's like in, in every iteration of Star Trek and I see it here with this ship. You know, that's how it's coming in again. The ship's going to land on the planet, so it, you you know it's a little different. But if it was coming in for an orbit, it would be a really weird orbit because it seems like it would be upside down. Well, probably once it 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 actually enters goes to the atmosphere and it's and it's affected by the planet's gravity, it'll it would uh, kind of like a, a plane when it's landing, it'll kind of come in yeah. and do a wide turn and come back around. Right. Huh. Okay. And they, so they land on the they come down and they see this circular you know farmland. Which I guess they know nothing about this about this uh, this colony other than that the ship basically the ship tells them they have to their you know Federation rules say that if you're close by you have to lend aid so yeah. they're gonna come in and they notice all this all the the dead vegetation surrounding this this um, farmed land this um, processed land where we're gonna yeah uh, and then they come down and come out and they see and the and Vander Vandernet looks a little familiar to me too. He he looks like a, an old Will Riker, is is what I got yeah, in my notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's like I saw that. It's like man, he looks like an old Will Riker. Just yeah, you know, sporting that little uh, little soul patch he's got there. And even the the woman there with him, she looks familiar there. Uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, shoot, on the news, not um, the one that left Dateline. I think is who I'm thinking of, but I, I could be wrong there. Connie Chung. No, I, I mean I, I wasn't thinking Asia. I was thinking the other the other one, um, no. more Latina. But I could be wrong there. It's like, uh, but there's something really familiar with that with her. And they land and they immediately try to pawn off Thela. Maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong. You think it's Thela or Tila? That H is silent. Yeah, I would say Tila. Tila. Tila tequila. No, Tila no, no. Tequila. no. <laughs> but it's Andorian. Who knows? It could, the T could be silent. Yeah. But what will. I'll defer to your. Uh, I'm going to say Tila. Tila. Yeah. And you know, basically, they've got her locked in the back in the cabin, and they're, you know, they're amazed that I guess they expected. And I don't know if this is kind of a, uh, a nod to uh, the Paradise Syndrome, where they go down to the Earth Colony that they think are going to be dead for the the Bertold rays, and they yeah. they've been breathing the spores. Uh, so I don't know what this kind of knock in is the uh, the fringe groups that are that have left left. Earth and are kind of shunning technology and want to live a simpler life, but they seem like they just want to kind of live. It's it seems more they want to live on their own, kind of a little further away from Federation rules and regulations, and want to kind of carve their own exactly their own little spot of the galaxy out. So they're not necessarily. It's just more of an agrarian society, but they still have all the, the comforts of home. Uh, 
except for the guys that are, you know, the, these, God, I don't know, or these, these Funkus guys that are in this band. It looks like, like there's yeah. no cover from that. That looks pretty. Uh, do you that like, makes me think of uh, the guy that, that had the, golly, the stuff growing on his hands where it was, they, basically they said it was some sort of, um, it was like bones growing out of his hand in every direction. They finally fouled him off. I remember seeing him on like Stanley's Superhuman. Wow. But that was the color of it all. Now, this this large two-page spread here, mm-hmm. um, this looks like uh, an amalgam of different works. Like maybe he used his computer or something to, to put this together. I would say that for the moons, especially, they don't look drawn. They look, they look painted. They like do Alex look also painted. And then the the fence just looks uh, architectured. Uh, you know, when, when he was doing OMAC, and you remember he had to make that uh, time travel device. Yeah. And he wound up using a form of CAD to come up with that. And I think he almost did something similar with this. It doesn't look CAD to me. It looks like his... I've always thought Byrne was a maybe a frustrated architect or he had... Like almost like he had gone down that road and decided to switch yeah. to comics because all his his buildings have are very they're very a uh, lot of angles, a lot of straight lines, not a lot of curves. Uh, very, it looks very architectural, not not in the Kirby crazy Kirby Tech type architecture. But so I don't see a I don't get a a CAD vibe from the fence. I do agree the the planets look painted and the sky is definitely looks. Like he's generated that in Photoshop or something, because that does not look like that's done with the the color color probably did that. But I like yeah. I like the fence. I like I don't. Oh yeah, it is cool. Yeah, it is cool. cool. But but there's something jarring in the page that it 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 pulled it pulled me out of the story because I I sat there and spent several minutes just examining that because you've got the the standard art above and the standard art below, and then you've got this two page piece in the middle of it and it it kind of it's like wait a second what happened here? I, I, I can see what you're talking about it does look different it does contrast with the drawn work that's above and below it and in, yeah in, in itself it looks like a combination of you know drawn work and computer work and maybe that's what's uh, kind and, of you know popping out and having it uh, I, I want to know is why it's so tall they don't seem like they're like they're fearing for anything dangerous on the planet. I understand its purpose is to kind of just expand out and give them more land that they can farm. But why does it need to be? This thing looks like it's two hundred feet tall. Well, I mean that's the next page, right? But but they even say themselves that this has never happened before. Not like these these roots are trying to uh, attack the wall all the time. Hmm. So that was a little. Uh, I mean it. Maybe they built it before they realized they didn't need it. Uh, I want you know it's it's funny. I'm because this was done in 2010, right? Right. Does does this setup here make you think of Avatar at all? And because uh, uh, the very get... next page, we see the um, that kind of thing that's rolling out, spraying the uh, defoliant foam, mm-hmm. and it's like I mean they don't really give you a good. He doesn't give you a really good view of it, but it's it's very tank like. Yeah, it's these these massive treads. It's almost like the the crawler treads are on the uh, launch vehicle for NASA yeah. when they when they launch a, a, a rocket. Yeah. 
So it's coming out and just spraying this weed killer or whatever it is so that they can, which I thought, because I had to look this up, I thought a defoliant was like, uh, was like a weed killer. It was like Roundup. Yeah. Apparently defoliant really will just cause plants and trees to lose their leaves. It doesn't necessarily kill them. So, because I thought if this was like Roundup, then you might be poisoning the soil and that you're going to come back in and try to cultivate yourself. Yeah, but this is future defoliant. So it's true. Yeah, it could be. Now, just- I, I tell you, I did not like these uh, flying platforms that um, he put in there. There's something really, I don't know, something about those really bothered me because you know, it, it, again, it's it's it, in in later iterations of Trek, we don't see anything like that being used by anyone, and you know, we've seen up to you know eighty plus years later. Closest thing would be the 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 gravity boots or the booster boots, whatever Spock wears in right. Final Frontier. Yeah, that don't get used again except in the movies. Um, I mean, they used them in Star Trek VI, and then they also used them in First Contact. Well, those are I think those are gravity boots. I'm talking about the boots yeah. he used to. Oh yeah, the rocket. Yeah, yeah, rocket, rocket boots. boots. Yeah, yeah. But again, you know, it's like uh, we we didn't we don't see technology like this being used anywhere else and. I understand why he wanted to, to put that in there, but I, I think it was it was going a little beyond. It would have been easier to have them in in like like shuttle pods rather than than doing this kind of thing. Well, if you do that, you don't have the drama of him trying to rescue the man on the ground and having to overload the skimmers and true, and, true. And I I think I see your point, but I think he would have to really limit himself to well, if they couldn't put this or wouldn't put this in the show, maybe perhaps I shouldn't draw this as opposed to well now I can do anything because I've got it's all pen and ink and I can create whatever I think the show should have and I can that I can see that could be a little seductive but yeah I, I didn't I didn't have a problem with them I thought they looked like the the next natural step from the segue you know is this what the segue is going to become once we d- develop anti-gravity these little hmm. devices you can just kind of scoot around on but I just want to belt just a belt. You just want the gravity belt? Is that what? Uh, I, I, I don't. I don't want a platform to stand on. I want. I want my feet dangling. Okay. I want to fly. Don't you want your? Uh, what is it? The Legionnaire flight ring? Is that what you want? Ultimately, I've got one right here on my desk, right next to my sea monkeys. You gonna put it on and jump off the house? <laughs> no, I'm not stupid. <laughs> don't, don't do that. <laughs> Good golly! This, you know, the thing is, there is not any warning inside the ring that says "ring does not allow wearer to fly." That surprises me. That really surprises me that somebody didn't have to write copy to let you know, don't drop off a building with this ring. <laughs> what did you think of the uh, the uh, the walking roots? These uh, that look to me like either elephants or anteaters or... Uh, uh, you know, it, it made me think of Tundra mm-hmm. from Alpha Flight number one. Yep. Um and, you know, and, and then I also was thinking about uh, the uh, – golly, what were they called in uh, The Lord of the Rings? The Ents? Part, the what? Yeah, the Ents and what they did with the trees. and uh, You know, again, it, it, it went back to the the intelligence of the, the forestry itself. So, I, I, I mean, whenever I see something like this, I have to suspend my disbelief just a little bit. Because uh, uh, again, he is drawing upon his own imagination 
to create something larger than life. And, um, you, you know, normally we see that kind of curvy, almost alien appearing organic kind of thing here. And, and here we have what basically allow, amount, amounts to large hay bales, mm-hmm. uh, supremely large hay bales, uh, attacking the thing. Uh, I get kind of, of I, I get kind of a man thing vibe. Man thing, yes, man thing or swamp thing. Swamp thing, right? Yeah, yeah. But I I think it was a little lacking in detail. But then again, what kind of detail can you put to a shambling mound of a plant? Well, nothing. I mean, it's it's yeah. I mean, it just has to be. I, I do like the foam effect. That pink foam as it's jutting out of these two sprayers. That's mm-hmm. a that's a kind of a nice. Um, Either that or the guys down there are just trying to give them some cotton candy. <laughs> Spraying ice cream on them. <laughs> yeah, there's that, yeah. Oh, man. And then McCoy gets all, you know, kind of goes Kirk on him and says, you know, you got to rescue him. And they're like, eh, no, that's just the way things go. <laughs> we got no choice. And then these guys come in with the phasers, and I wish these phasers, I realize it's more in the future, but I wish these phasers looked like the phaser rifle from... Uh, where no man has gone before. Yeah. When he goes up against uh, Gary. Gary. Gary Mitchell. Gary yeah, Mitchell. I know. I always love that 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 phaser rifle. And again, it's something we ever see again until we see the well, the phaser rifle has come back until next gen. And then, of course, they, of course, ultimately we find you know we we kind of realize as a reader this wasn't a big surprise. I kind of you could kind of see this coming that when Duncan realizes that the other the other plants are reacting. So I think. That wasn't a to me. It wasn't a big surprise, especially when you find out that the when they first land. They said the entire he says the entire planet is covered in vegetation. Yeah, to start immediately thinking. Of course, that's kind of a Star Trek thing. You know what? What alien life form that we don't think is an intelligent life form turns out to be an intelligent life form that we screw up or mess with that we're going to have to change our ways. True. True. Yeah. So now. On this next page, when we go back to our Andorian prisoner, um, so you actually read that as she was offering herself. I when I first did, but when I when I was reading my synopsis, that's when it kind of clicked because I had read that she was rich. I yeah, thought, oh, she's probably offering him. She could be offering right. him money. But his own suggestion back. I'm not even gonna ask yeah. what that means. Yeah. So he was reading, and maybe that's why I was going in his reaction because he was thinking, "Here's a pretty girl." She's offering me, you know, what's the one thing she can offer me? Uh, she obviously doesn't have money on her. So, yeah. So it could be either one. It could be, you know, you could read it either way. And then that's when the this disease is starting to just kind of jump from, or just that's when it, it's kind of uh, just start spreading like like wildfire or like, uh, what does he call it later? The, uh, the blood, the, whatever this blood fever is. Yeah, but it, it made me think of that. Um that M. Night Shyamalan movie where Mark Wahlberg was a scientist. The Happening? Um, the happening. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's what and, I thought. That's a, this this yeah. whole this whole story is The Happening meets Day of the Triffids. You know, it's, it's the, <laughs> yeah. uh, the planet is basically reacting. And why it took almost 60 years for the pl- the planet to react now, to the human presence. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's definitely the encroachment factor, you yeah. know. They, they they live there for a certain time. You develop a, a, a an equilibrium with the the surroundings. But start to expand. Okay, there's a problem. Let's you know let's clear the infection. Now uh, at the bottom of this next page where they 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 show the uh, the things you know again at the wall. 
the guy that McCoy is between McCoy and Lars. Does that look looks a little bit like Jack Kirby or or uh, golly, I, I, it's right on the tip of my tongue. You, you, you know what I'm talking about there? I don't see Kirby. I see a resemblance, but I couldn't tell you who who uh, who it could be. It looks it, it to me it looks like kind of a 1960s actor. Some guy you would see on a 1960s TV, like Mission Impossible or Man from Uncle, something like that. But I can't, uh, I can't think of it. To me, it, it, he looks like he was on, um, what was that? Um, oh, man, I'm blanking now. It was HBO series, New Jersey, Mobster, Family. Um, oh, uh, Sopranos? Yeah, it looks, like, it looks like he came up the Sopranos or out of Goodfellas. I could see that. Yeah. And Vanderbilt there looks a little like, I don't know why I got this flash in my head. He looks like. <laughs> Little like a little bit of uh, an aging vanilla ice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that. Um, but yeah, because he doesn't, you know, it's it's just the, it's not, uh, it it is the goatee. It's the goatee like, that's it, doing it's it. It's the goatee. It's not a soul patch. It's a goatee. Yeah. And the other part would be the Van Dyke if he had it on, but he doesn't. But yeah, it's because of the because he's got just the goatee like that because that vanilla ice was doing that for yeah. a while. At least he, he may still be doing that now. I know he's definitely not with the times. Uh, man, the, the woman, okay, there she looks on the, on the next page, that woman that I was talking about earlier. I, again, she looks like somebody else very, very familiar. Um, His wife? Yeah, and I'm trying to, it, it's just, I, I, can, I can see her face, but um, man, was it Paget Brewster who? Uh, I don't know who that is. Uh, she was on Friends, and she was on Grandfathered, which was a, new, a show that just got canceled. John Stamos' show. Yeah, her, I read that. Yeah, but along they, that's, with that's, Agent Carter. Did you hear that? Yes. Not, I, I, I'd rather have Agent Carter back than Agents of Shield. I hate, I hate to admit that, but that has more. I was having more fun with Carter than I am currently with Shield. Well, I'm, I'm enjoying Agents of Shield. I, I, you know, it's like I. The Inhumans thing took me a little while to to buy into, you know, you know just because they can't use the whole mutant thing. Um, that bugs me. Agent, Agent Carter is one of those things that they could bring back every couple of years, maybe do like a Netflix series or something. Because it was not supposed to be a long series. You know, the, the, the surprise of how it did the first season really, really well. They thought it would carry over in the second season, but they, they took him out in New York and took him to California. Yeah. Well, I, I like the fact that it was kind of a filler because when, Agent, yeah. when Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. would go off on their hiatus, it would come in and it would fill that gap. And then so you would have a continuous, you know, because they didn't necessarily tie into each other or not, not as much. But S.H.I.E.L.D., I, it's too much inhuman. It's Now it's all about the inhumans. And I know they're setting up a bigger, a bigger storyline and it's kind of it's got that long form storytelling to it. But it's just it's too much inhumans. I want them to go back and do something else. I think we're going to get to something else once we get past this this storyline that they that they're trying to wrap that they trying to wrap up. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, we'll just see where where they're able to go with it. Um, now, as far as Agent Carter being canceled, I really don't have a problem. I mean, Haley Atwell, she's got she's got a new series anyway. Yeah, she's already got something else. So, uh, you know, that's that's fine. And, and they can bring her back to show flashbacks and stuff whenever they want. And they like doing that, apparently. That's true. Um, um, but that just means that Marvel will probably try to find another filler series 
to put in next year. Well, there was there was supposed to be a spinoff with Mockingbird, and that's already been can- that's canceled been, as that's, well. That's been canceled, so that's not going to happen. So now we're back to one. I mean, Marvel may be killing it at the in the cinema, but for TV, DC's got them beat up, up, you know, backwards and forwards. Yeah, well, Marvel is is doing you know great on Netflix. Well, okay, okay. Then now, yes, I correct. Yes, yeah, that they are. They're knocking that out of the park with, uh, and with yeah, and anything that's going to be on network TV, whether you know ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, you know that they, they have to deal with things that you know that you don't have to deal with with Netflix or you know in, you know any other venue that you want to sit there and do that with. And so it's got to be something that that they can give the kind of appeal that would want them to do for for a network. True, and they don't have the Netflix shows are loosely tied into the Marvel uh, expanded U universe, as opposed to Shield seems more closely tied to have to either reflect what's going on in the films or somehow fit in and right. do it's, you know like they did with uh, Winter Soldier. How when Shield fell, that affected Shield. Or, you know, when Shield fell, it affected the TV show. But right. yes, you're you're right, absolutely right. The the Netflix shows are are wonderful. So I have no problem with Daredevil, Jessica Jones. I'm really looking forward to um, Luke Cage. Yeah, me too. And even the Punisher, which you're gonna do. Now, yeah. going back to the to the network TV thing, if they really wanted to to sit there and bump the ratings and do something cool. I think they should give the Falcon a miniseries on TV. You know, the fallout from Winter Soldier for him. There, there's a story that could be told there, and you could do it in a six episode series. You could do that. I could see that, and and I think that's something they could do. Kind of take the same approach they do with comics that have it. it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, at least on Netflix, it, most of their series are ten episodes, twelve episodes, thirteen episodes. He could do a. He could do a in between movies, you know, cause I don't think, right. I don't think that actor is so expensive. They couldn't afford to have him. Oh, I think it, do a, Anthony Mackie, Anthony Mackie is a very serviceable actor and, and he's real smart about, about the roles that he takes. And he's taken a lot of good roles over the years. Um, the, the I mean, the, the sit there is, if you look at the movie universe and you say, well, who from the movie universe could you make something out of? All right. You got the kid from Iron Man three that they could, they could conceivably make a show because kids love kids that do stuff like that. You know, they build stuff. Yeah, I could see that. And, and my, my son, when he watched Iron Man 3, he was just all into that storyline with that little kid. So I could see them doing something with that, even if they did it on Nick, you know. Um, you've also got the uh, supporting cast of Ant-Man, Michael Pena and those other guys that – you know, they could almost do like uh, what they did on X-Files with the lone gunman. I think it'd be nice if those, maybe if they don't have their own, they wouldn't have their own standalone show, but them just pop up on, uh, maybe they won't, they wouldn't fit because the, those, uh, the Netflix, uh, Daredevil and Jessica Jones are a little darker. Yeah. Just have them pop up. I mean, they, they kind of do that service by mentioning, you know, they'll mention, they'll say the Avengers, they'll mention a name or. Yeah. So they let you know that, hey, this is in the same. And they even did that with the crossover character from Daredevil into Jessica Jones with the. Uh, uh, Night Nurse. Uh, yeah. What, what, what the heck's her name? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Brooks, you got uh, Claire Temple. No, 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 Night the, Nurse and. Oh, Jaron Hogarth or. No, it's. Uh, 
God, what is what the she's it's terrible. What is the uh Roseanne Dawson? Roseanne uh Rosario, Rosario Dawson. Rosario Claire Dawson. Temple. Yeah, Claire Temple, the night nurse. Yeah, yeah, but I was trying to think the actress's name. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, right. So that that connects those shows. But see, she's not the only night nurse. And uh, it looks like Rachel McAdams is the other one of the other because there's three night nurses, I believe. And Rachel McAdams looks like she's going to be one of them in Doctor Strange, unless they're going to somehow make her go from being a worker in a hospital to Clea. And I don't know if they're going to do that. That's what it looks like, but I don't. Wow, we've really gotten off topic yeah, here, haven't let's, we? Let's get, let's, get back, <laughs> let's get back to Star Trek. Okay, let's get back to Star Trek now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the people are getting sick and um, – you know, all of the, when they get into the, the the Joanna, and you were talking about the burn tech, I was actually underwhelmed by this page of burn tech. I thought it was kind of lazy. Well, if you yeah, if you kind of look at that, you can kind of you could probably consider all of it a little. Yeah, I mean, it's all just patterns of of controls that have been put in there, and you know, I, I've talked in the past about how burn tech sometimes seems to put a lot of stuff in there. You have no idea how it would be used. And, and, it's, and just, you know, it's just switches, lots and lots of switches. Or lots of switches, or, you know. But then again, when you looked at, at 70s sci-fi, like if you look at the movie Alien and you're aboard the, 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 the was that the Nostromo? Nostromo. That, you know, they go into the rooms and there's like 50 billion switches and they're all clear. And you're like, how do you know what to hit? And in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Khan's looking at the, the helm and going, where's the override? Every <laughs> single switch looks exactly the same. And, you know, they, they did that in the 70s and 80s where they, they did all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, when we get to next gen and they do everything, it's, you know, it's touchscreen technology, but not quite, uh, or touchpad, I should say. Well, this almost looks like he's predating. I mean, obviously, next gen was already on, but. Right. This looks a lot like because these he just draws these as grids. He just does grids. He colors them, yeah. and they're just uh, you don't know if they're buttons or readouts. If they're they and this is like a medical bay, panels. yeah. This is the, yeah. So yeah, again, you know, it's like I said. I, uh, again, this is a pretty busy page, and I called it lazy, and I feel bad about that already. It's just you know the as far as what, you know what it is. I was like, uh, you know, it just doesn't look like a medical bay. It just looked like he threw just a lot of burn tech in there with no rhyme or reason for what what anything does. Well, you think he would if this is that old a ship? He you think burn since he's trying to trying to visually connect uh, the the past and the present that yeah. this would either look more like the sick bays on the Enterprise or more of which a were very sparse on the right. technology in there. Yeah. Well, I think he can't help put that's his. You got to fill the space, right? Kirby, I think Kirby couldn't help but but draw his type of uh, machinery. And I think Byrne can't help oh, yeah, but okay. draw these type of flat panels that he puts everywhere. Yeah. Did you yeah. get um, when he's diagnosing Duncan, and Duncan's basically, you know, he's falling more, he's getting more and more ill, and and the whole time he's like, "Well, you should do this, you should do that," and he's kind of kind of trying to walk uh, McCoy through it. I got a, a kind of a strong Mr. Spock vibe. That's that sounds like kind of Spock Spock's brain. Exactly, it's kind of like Spock dialogue. It's kind of something Spock yeah. would do. You know, Spock's dying. He's like telling you, "Well, this is how I'm dying, and this is what you should do to uh, to examine me." So, I don't know if that was purposeful or just just to kind of create some character in the, in, in Duncan about that's he's it, that. It, 
it made me think of that scene in Saving Private Ryan with Giovanni Verbisi, where he was dying and he was oh, telling the guys what, to, what do, to do. And, yeah. And then ultimately they just pumped him up full of a whole bunch of painkillers till he went out. Yep. Ugh. Do you – let me ask you this because some of this, when he starts to explain how this is works, it either I, I'm just not getting it or it doesn't seem like it it adds up because he, he seems to – McCoy seems to have an idea about what's happening, especially when he finds out that the, the, the livestock's not affected. It's just humans and how fast this uh, infection is, is, is mutating and, and symptoms are skipped and you're – you know, you may go straight to the fungus. You won't, you know, you're not going to experience these other five or six steps you have. They've so far have uh, documented. And so he takes a sample from Duncan and he takes a sample, I guess, from one of the previous patients when he first landed. And they're like, oh, they're identical across the board. And I thought, and maybe I'm wrong, but wouldn't, if you had the same disease, wouldn't it, wouldn't the samples be the same? Well, I, again, you know, I, it makes me go back to that that stupid movie um, with Mark Wahlberg, where it it's another intelligence at work, and so it doesn't have to sit there and do that. It did that, but it stepped up its game as we went further into this. Uh, I mean, there's an intelligence working. It's not just uh, they're going to get infected and they're going to go through all the stages. It can control it. Well, right, and it and, is. It is a planet reacting. It's almost like they are an infection in the planet, and the planet is creating antibodies to uh, eradicate these humans. That it is, it is, or are the it's its own infection. I just didn't see how he makes the connection that the you know this so basically the samples everybody's that they the the infection they take from I guess two different people the the readings are the same, so that make McCoy. That he concludes that okay, well then this whole planet is one big organism, and right. if that's the case, and we that's going to give us an advantage, so we can kind of trick it into thinking we're not we're going to change our body chemistry for a few minutes, and it will die because it's it's created itself to specifically attack humans. It just seemed like, like Byrne was getting trying to come up with an idea, and he didn't quite thought it out, and he was kind of throwing some techno babble at us. To yes. kind of trick us, <laughs> kind of thinking, oh, well, that makes sense. Then we start thinking about it. It doesn't make sense. Is that a Federation phaser or is that an Endorian phaser? What, the one that uh, Tila's got? Yeah. It. That's not Federation, I guess. That's, well, it looks almost that, like. Uh, looks well, almost look, like. Yeah. It's just weird. I, I, and that thing on the, is that the front or the back of it that's got that thing sticking down? Oh, no, that's the phaser emitter. Okay. It's just turned sideways. Yeah, it actually looks like like oh. he's done a variation of the, the Type 2 phaser from the original series. Yeah. And this is a nice, probably the, the best, ex, most expression we've got from from her at the bottom when she's so outraged that he slapped the gun out of her hand. Yes, I, I that's, a, that's a great that's shot a good, of her. It is a good and just shot. How huge he makes her pupils and everything. The the coloring the, the, the very good job on that on that particular shot there yeah for that and then I like how though I, I gotta say her shoulders and, and neck and everything almost look furry with the pencil lining it does it, the, she looks yeah. almost she looks almost like a weightlifter's shoulders like yeah almost like that's the She Hulk there <laughs> then I love how McCoy just kind of grabbed her by the antenna which has got to be 
It's like grabbing someone by the ear. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ow, 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 ow. And, you know, and then she's disgusted about wanting to touch, which I think anybody would. You wouldn't want to touch whatever this. Yeah, but then she works at super speed. Oh, wait, no, no, that's just a time-lapse. Um. <laughs> it does look like a, but, a, a, does look like a panel out of a flash, doesn't it? Well, I actually, I was thinking generations when Superman comes up with the formula from Lex Luthor's lab or, or the Ultra Humanite's lab. And he goes around and resynthesizes the formula so that uh, his grandson can get his powers. Yeah. And but yeah, that's that make that's what that made me think of. You know, just Superman. You know, j- j- doing everything at super speed. But yeah, the Flash as well. Yeah. Um, well, it's like when they would uh, in Spider Man when they show him swinging through the city and you see all the poses as he's jumping yeah. from from lamp pose to building and you would just see all these different poses as he's jumping kind of across the script. The, the classic Dicko. Yeah. 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 And she apparently is. Uh, she's a quick study, so. And all of a sudden, she's happy too. Yeah. Well, I she's think... smiling for the rest of the book almost. <laughs> well, I think it maybe ties in with she wanted to get away from Andoria because she was she was she was just had all this luxury and privilege and probably was waited on hand and foot and never probably didn't get a chance to probably her her entire life she was controlled by somebody probably her parents and for the first time she's doing something on her own. So it, it goes to her wanting to, she wanted to feel like she was alive and wanted to have a little adventure. And I think that's, yeah. she's kind of caught up in the moment. That's why she's, uh, she's accomplished something. That's why she's yeah. uh, happy now, she's found the. On this, on this next page well, it's the page after next. Cause it's it, the, the page where, where they show her, you know, curing the, um, the disease on Duncan there is, pretty clean it's wholly unremarkable but the very next page when they show that one andorian and he's got the antenna up front and that was jarring to me i mean i i didn't watch enterprise a whole lot so i don't know that that uh i saw you know the the variations of the of the andorians well this is not exactly like enterprise the enterprise andorians had a a thinner Mm -hmm. and it came more to a point and it came out of their temple and kind of came forward this Looks like they have the same type of antenna, but it's growing out of the. And these have, I always got the impression that, at least in Enterprise, the Indorians didn't have ears. That was the, the antenna was their ears, and here this one has ears, but the other ones you can't tell because they've got their hair kind of covering it. So it may just be that there are different species, different, like I said, different kind of casts of of Andorians. I don't. Know, this guy is a. He's a little different shade of blue too. He's a little more. Uh, almost maroon or kind of purple. It's got a little more red in his. He's not quite that bright blue that the rest yeah. of them are. And the fact that I thought <laughs> funny that I don't know what kind of strings they're pulling that to uh, basically force McCoy to have to take this uh, take Tila in so she can become a part of his crew. And I do. I will say I like. I mean that that kind of sets up that. She's going to be with us, you know. That's this is like yeah. the, the pilot of the episode of the show, and she's going to come in. She's going to join, join our little ragtag team of these uh, of uh, McCoy and Duncan. Yeah, Roberta Lincoln is joining with Gary Seven. I'm, exactly. I'm sorry, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, and then of course we go back to Kirk uh, putting everything away, and uh, yeah, you know, acknowledging that that Bones is probably having a good time. Now, did you think when you first did you read these as they were coming off the newsstand? No, I I found them later. Uh, I, I, again, the IDW Star Trek stuff was a complete surprise to me. 
And, you know, I hadn't really been buying books in the last couple of years. And then uh, as my son started, you know, developing his interest in stuff that was at the comic book shops uh, and his ever never ending quest for the best action figures and whatnot, mm-hmm. uh, I found myself, you know, going through the bins and stuff. And, you know, I, I'd ask, hey, what's John Byrne doing these days? And I, I typically get the obligatory who? <laughs> uh, which I'm just like, come here, come here. And I'd show him the dark Phoenix saga. I said, look at this gorgeous, gorgeous art, better than any of this crap, you know, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I sit there and I, I went around and I found this particular, uh, series and I picked all of them up and I said, I didn't realize he was doing Trek. And then I found the trade paperback for ponds of war. And then I went, you know, collected everything there. And then all of a sudden I found angel, and I'm like, wow, you know, I forgot about, you know, I didn't realize he was, he had done that as well. So it was, it was, uh, you know, like all of a sudden, you know, rediscovering something you hadn't, you know, just finding a friend you hadn't talked to in years. Yeah. My, my, my summer, I, I actually picked these up at least the first three as they came out. And, and I guess I just saw it on the stand. I was like, wow, it's okay. One is Star Trek. And then I realized, oh, this is John Byrne. And I, yeah. I didn't, I didn't know he had done the previous, uh, crew and, Ryan right Williams and all the rest and then i saw i started collecting those like oh he's done other star trek stuff for all these years so i went yeah back it looks and, like i went backwards yeah yeah like, exactly like I you're went backwards there. Too. but when i read this yeah. first one i thought this was going to be a continuing uh, story device that each each issue would be kirk reading another letter and they would book yeah. in each one but i don't think flipping through i don't think that's the case i think it that no just no because he had it. he had scotty in the next issue yeah uh, and then, and then there were those aliens that I just couldn't look at them. They, they, uh, they reminded me of the impossible man <laughs> and, uh, they, I, I, they were just a little too cartoony the way the eyes and all that was drawn. And then that third issue, if I remember right, no, um, the third issue is really brutal, incredibly brutal. I haven't read these since they first came out, so I need to reread them again. Yeah, and, and I mean it's a great series. And then there was something else I'm trying to remember that had to do with the aliens that he drew on the covers. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, the different varia- variations of these of the, these issues, the covers. Um, because I think actually it got brought up when we were covering Ganthet's tale. Well, in one of them, he does have a puppeteer, which is from the Ring World. There, the, yeah, Larry that's, Niven, it, that's the Larry it. Niven um, series of books. And that's why he he always. He loves, you know, as we stated in Ganthus, he loves Larry Niven and he loves the puppeteer. So he always sneaks one in whenever he gets a chance. So there is one, I think, in one of the, uh, in one of the, the, the various covers. Various covers, exactly. Yeah. Well, let now, me ask you this. What? Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. What, what did you think overall of this issue? Um, I enjoyed it. Uh, the, the thing that, that did become obvious to me by the end, though, is that, I want um, I want my Star Trek stories to be more of a full crew kind of thing rather than this because you're invested in McCoy, but I never and even reading the whole four issue series, I never uh, felt any kind of uh, connection to Duncan at all. And you know, of course, they carried that storyline with Duncan and Tila to a natural you know conclusion, right. But, you know, and she was kind of interesting, uh, you know, but not enough. You know, there wasn't a Spock to the story for me that, you know, the, there was the McCoy, but he's got to have a Spock to work with. I think it, it goes with Kirk. I, th- I think 
that crew is uh, a good example of the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, meaning you need yeah. all of it together to work. Now, if you you can add just have Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and that that you could tell some great stories that way. And I, but I understand yeah. that he obviously he doesn't want to have to draw those actors over and over. Or this may just appeal to him that he again, like I said, he has more leeway to do these kind of lost years for McCoy because Kirk is obviously still in Starfleet and you can only tell so but you're restricted to the kind of stories you can tell right. here. Kirk can and he can kinda of do whatever he wants. And that and that's what he did. I mean he went to right. his, to his sandbox because he used number one again and he used Gary Seven right. again. Um and of course, you know, we'd seen number one in crew where she had a little streak of gray. And then in this one, she's like total gray, if I remember. But I mean, you know, still, it's enjoyable. But to me, it felt still like it was missing something. And I, I wanted, you know, it's like getting, you know, a, a, a cheeseburger, but it doesn't have pickles or ketchup or. Yeah or onions or something. There's something that's missing that doesn't make it as enjoyable if it, if it was all together. I, 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 uh, I'll go with that. I, I seem to remember when I first read these, I wasn't taken with them so much. I didn't, they were enjoyable, but I was like, I thought they were, eh, they were just okay. And on this second read, at least his first one, I enjoyed it more. I thought they had, he does have the, he does have a, a good ear for, uh, the characters. And he's getting voice ear, yeah. the voice. And I, you know, I definitely am reading this. I hear uh, D Kelly's voice when I'm yeah. reading it, but, and it didn't, I got a, a really strong next gen feeling from this story. And mainly, mainly because I guess it's a, uh, it's dealing with kind of um, an ecological problem. And it's a, this, I could see this happening on next gen. Picard comes down, finds out these people are, are using this defoliant and they're and and they're destroying these plants that they think are just plants and it turns out it's this huge uh, planet-wide being Picard's going to give him a huge speech he's going to guilt him into changing their ways because he's got to report it to the federation and then at the end he leaves hoping that they're going to either change either change their ways or he's going to force them off the planet and I like the fact that this didn't get preachy I mean McCoy says, "Hey, I had to, I had to report what happened, and you're probably not going to like what they come back with." But he doesn't give him a Kirk speech. He doesn't give him a Picard speech. He doesn't. No. He doesn't really kind of judge him. Uh, and it, and I guess that's also I didn't understand if Byrne was trying to make is he trying to make an ecological kind of statement? Is he trying to make a statement against destroying your planet? You know, I, well, I think he was talking about the rainforest there. I think right. Is, I, is he trying to make very, is he trying to make a point to that? Which yeah. if he did, I don't think he did it. He didn't beat us over the head with it, like no. But he was like right that. on. The, but it was it was on the nose. I mean, he was. Yeah. Now uh, the the other the, my other complaint, and it's not so much this issue, but the other issues, is when Byrne Byrne was creating too many other alien races. You know, if you're going to play in this sandbox, play in the sandbox. Bring in the Tellarites. Bring in, you know, the Telosians. Bring in, you know, something we're familiar with. Bring in the and, Gorn. I want, I want a yeah. comic oh, series with the Gorn. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and, and that was, you know, the thing is that he kept bringing in these other alien species. 
And they didn't look like anything we'd ever seen before on Trek. And they didn't look like any aliens. I mean, again, you know, a part of it is they're getting away from the, you know, he, he definitely got away from the Westmore school of, of uh, cranial adjustment. Right. Where, <laughs> where, is that right? Is that who I'm thinking about? Michael Westmore? That's, yeah, was exactly. The, That's who did the yeah. makeup. Yeah. Yeah. And so he did, you know, he didn't do that. But at the same time, he went so far on his aliens that that I, it kind of took me out of the Trek story. I didn't feel like I was reading Star Trek. I could see that. Yeah, that. But that's he can kind of do what he wants to do. I guess he he. I, I, I could see him not wanting to feel. Well, I have to either stick with these races or I have to draw. You no, know, I, I have to. You know, should I create my alien races to mimic what? could have been created on the TV show, which would be basically a person with some kind of prosthetic, you know, on their right. head or on their nose or something like that. So he can just, like you said, he can just think way outside the box and create whatever he wants. Uh, so that, I mean, I think that's a, that's a hit and miss. It, it, as you said, it kind of takes you out because it's not what you're normally, you know, it's not what you've used to, what we are accustomed to seeing in the, you know, the 30 years of Star Trek we've seen on TV. Yeah, uh, 50, 50. 50 years, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I'm trying to think the actual how many years that, you know, if you count up how it's on the air. But uh, that happens sometimes, I think, when you read novels about because in a novel you can do, you know, you, you see that a lot with, with tech, as you said, it's not only yeah. races, but with tech, like the skimmers. You think, well, that's something that we never saw before. And then a writer starts writing Trek and he's like, well, I can write whatever I want. They, or, or he imposes his... I'm a Trek fan. I wish they should have done this and I'm going to put this in my book. Dang it. And that's, you know. Yeah. And, and when we're looking at the Fimetis, we're seeing him trying to create things with his computer and the Fimetis. And they're still, you know, it's not necessarily always a good translation. He's got one alien race. that looks like brown paper bags. <laughs> that's, that's the, yeah, it's a it's a work in progress. It's definitely yeah, and, 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 yeah, definitely, definitely, and I, I don't begrudge him that at all because he's he's you know really creating a new frontier in the comic book industry. I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you got any final notes on this? Uh, I don't have any final notes. I do want I meant to bring up earlier because I'm gonna do a little little bragging. Yeah. I got today. I found some some burn comics. Oh yeah! I, I got in the mail today. I got Champions twelve, thirteen, and fifteen. Ooh! And I got Iron Fist five, seven, and nine. Oh, that's great! Now I've I've got almost the entire Iron Fist collection except for oh really the the X. I don't have the I, I don't have I've got issue one. I'm missing issue two. I don't have the Sabretooth or the X Men issue. Oh yeah, but Sabretooth I've got the one is going to be uh, kind of. This is actually the first. Iron actual Iron Fist I have I have the final issue of Iron Fist and Power Man which I think is what mm-hmm. one fifty I've got that one when it came on the stands but this is the actual first Iron Fist comics I've ever got other than the where he shows up in the burn drawn the Marvel team up with Spider Man and this is not burn but I just thought you'd appreciate it I got a uh, Green Lantern one hundred four which has got a very nice Mike Grill cover on it. Oh wow! Yeah. So that's that's way back in the day, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's that's um, kind of right after Neil Adams, I think, jumped off the book because I think Daniel yeah. Neil is still writing it, but but yeah, Adams and, and that was it. some good stuff, and that was still Green Lantern, Green Arrow too, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yep. Uh, exactly I, it I, that's 
that is where I got introduced to Mike Grell's artwork. And oh, I, I fell there? in love okay. with his art. Yeah, I fell in love with his artwork as, as soon as I saw that. I had no idea what he had done on Legion, uh, you know, or anything else. And, I, and of course, not, I hadn't um, learned much about his Warlord work either. Uh, and thank you very much for those Warlord books. I still oh, you're right. welcome. Because, uh, but those are they look so gorgeous. Did he do uh, the uh, since he did Green Lantern, Green Arrow? Did he do the Longbow Hunters? Um, yeah, Longbow Hunters. That was his. Uh, that's that his? Was his. That's his. And, okay. Yeah, he's the one that created the new look for for Green Arrow. He depowered uh, Dinah um, and put her through some serious crap. Uh, but you know, of course, uh, all that I think came from the work that he did on uh, John Sable Freelance mm-hmm. because, you know, he turned Green Green Arrow into, uh, he turned Ollie into an extension of, uh, of the way, you know, John Sable was written, though probably a little bit more liberal yeah. than, than Sable was. Like Sable was a little bit more conservative. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, and that's, that, that whole era, I liked it, but, you know, then Kevin Smith came in a couple years later and said he needs to be happy again. Oh, it sounds like what they did with sounds like the well, like when Wade took over Daredevil. Yeah, because they had basically uh, put Daredevil through the ringer so much that uh, he wanted to bring him to a little. And I, I like the Wade run on Daredevil. I thought it was a lot of fun. I haven't read the Wade run. Um, now I read uh, Bendis's run where he exposed Daredevil. Mm-hmm. And I actually really enjoyed that um, because it, it was – the storytelling in that actually reminded me of my own storytelling in the way I was writing certain stories. So I was reading that and how they were dissecting Daredevil's life and, and everything that Matt had done and how it had affected uh, – all, all these things that affected him. Looking at, at you know like the government sitting there tearing apart someone's life uh, through analysis. Yeah. And um, I had done that in some stories that I'd written. I was just like, wow, this is exactly how I would have done this. <laughs> That's cool. So I thought that was – I thought that, I thought it was really cool um, that – but I – it was one at, at a time, you know, it's like I would buy a book here and there and i go, wow, this is actually pretty good. But I wasn't buying comic books with, the, with regularity. Yeah. Uh, that So I missed Wade's run completely. I'm missing, I think, one issue, but it was because he, he did two runs. He did when they got to where they were renumbering. I think he'd up to the 20s and or only, 30s. I've got Kevin Smith's run, but I have I'd only read like two or three issues of that uh, uh, back when it, it first came out. Yeah. yeah, I think only thing of Kevin Smith I've ever read is his IDW for uh, when he did Bonic, the Bonic Man, which was kind of his idea. He didn't write it, but it was based on his idea and the. The infamous. Did he did did he hide behind a rock for a whole issue? I don't think so. Because in in an evening with Kevin Smith, oh. uh, he had written. You know, he talked about having written a six million dollar man movie script, mm-hmm. or, or or something along those lines. That and may be said, what this is based on. Yeah, and 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 they said basically, you know, there, there's a whole act where he basically hides behind a rock for some reason. You know, because <laughs> you know he's not what you call an action writer. No, no, he's you know? not. He's, he's not. He, he he writes dialogue. Yeah, that's that, that's his thing. Of course, have you heard what uh, Kevin Smith is going to be doing now? Uh, I, I posted on Facebook yesterday. 
other than Flash? He's already done the Flash episode, right? Right, but because of how well they liked the work that he did on the Flash, he's being picked to uh, run a show. Oh. The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. Oh, yes. I did read that. Yeah, the first season will basically be the first movie stretched out. The second season would be the Crime League. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Well, again, I don't think he's going to sit there and direct every episode. I think he's creating the the, the template for it. Right, and the then, look and feel and the tone of it. But they'll sit there and, and build the the mythology and everything within the, the series but he's gonna have other writers working on it he can't you know he can't do that he's no. got so many so many things that he's working on he still has to put together moose jaws and you know there, there's a lot of uh critical not, not negative uh critical but there's a lot of uh praise for his daughter lily rose depp for the work that they did in uh, yoga hosers Mm. And it seems like the 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 movie got a PG thirteen rating, ultimately, and so the teenage crowd may be flocking to this one simply because of Lily Rose Depp, who is on the cover of almost every magazine out there right now. Well, Buckaroo Banzai has got a, a pretty good pop cultural following. I, yes, uh, a cult following. Definitely. Cult following, exactly. I mean, I I saw it when it came out, and it's a film that I think I. I, I feel I should like more than I do. I like it, but it has not quite, it doesn't quite grab me with that, that I, I watch it and I enjoy it, but I, I think watching it, I should, I should really, really enjoy this. Well, have you okay. ever described it to someone else? No, I've never tried to. <laughs> okay. It's like if someone ever asks you, what's it about? As you describe it, you find how much you like it. And that's what I that's that's what made me realize how much I really like. I think it it's a film that you you don't realize. Maybe it's what you said. You don't realize how much you like it until you you revisit it, and then you realize, oh, I really like this. Yeah, you but love it, the ridiculousness of it. Yeah, I was sitting there explaining to my son what this is, and he goes, "This sounds so cool. When can we watch it?" And of course, I've got the DVD in my collection, so I'm like, "Okay, well, let's watch it." Yeah, I've got the and I've got the. Do you have the Marvel Super Special? Um, I'm not sure. No, no, I don't. Yeah, I don't I have that. Up that. Cheap, I think, somewhere recently. The artwork's not... Well, actually, I picked it up because the artwork is Mark Textera, who I like a lot. Oh, yeah. Uh, I like his Punisher work. Oh, I, I loved his Ghost Rider stuff. That's where I first saw, uh, encountered him, and I loved the way he did... When it was Danny... Uh, not Danny Rand, Danny... Uh, uh, catch. Danny Catch. Catch, 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 yeah. The second Ghost Rider. I like you, you know what, what's so funny about that is uh, have you read Marvels? Yes. The Kurt Busiek, Alex Ross. I had no idea that Danny Ketch was a ghostwriter <laughs> when I when I read that. So when he used to go, Danny, Danny Ketch, that sounds like a normal boy name. And I'm just like I, I'm just right there with Phil Sheldon at that moment. Yeah, that sounds like a nice normal yeah. normal kid name. Had no clue it was ghostwriter. And then years later I find out, ah, Oh man, sucker shot! But uh, I've I've never been a, a, a Ghost Rider fan. I've got the Burn issue of Ghost Rider and the Daredevil issue that's got Ghost Rider in it. That was you know the carryover from the Burn issue. Yeah, I've got a lot of Ghost Rider uh, Volume One, the Bronze Age stuff, and I've got almost the whole run of the second, which is Danny Ketch. Uh, but and I like Ghost Rider a lot. I've got I think I've got both the uh, the essentials. But did you did you like the Nicolas Cage movies? 
they're not bad. They're not. They're not. They're not I mean, Nicholas Cage is usually worth watching, and I like. There were some parts in the first one I thought they could have. They could. I think I like them on the same level as the the Tim Story Fantastic Four movies. Yeah, I, I can see that. I can see yeah. that. Uh, I, I watched the first one. I've not watched the second one. I keep meaning to because, well, it's got Sam Elliott in it, and I can listen to Sam Elliott reading a phone book. <laughs> the set, well, the first one is Sam Elliott. The second one doesn't. Oh, wait. the second one has Idra. 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 Jeez, I cannot talk today. Uh, Elba. Ezra. Ezra. Idris Elba. Idris Elba. Thank you. Really? The second one, yes. He's not not a prominent character, but he's in it. The second one is, is odd. It's 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 very uh, – the action is very frenetic. It's a lot of quick cuts. Uh, Ghost Rider's got kind of a cool look because he looks – not only is his head on fire, but all his clothing look like it's been kind of singed and burned. Yeah. So it's, it's a – you can usually pick that DVD up at, at Walmart for like seven bucks, but – it's not bad. I, I think I like the first one better because it's more traditionally what Ghost Rider is. The second one is kind of an, an, uh, almost a, a crank type crazy yeah, ride. I am looking at the, the credits list for Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance and I'm like, why didn't I watch this? Because you got Syrian Hines, you got Idris Elba, Johnny Whitworth, you got Christopher Lambert, the Highlander. Mm-hmm. He's, not, Anthony, he's not in it very much though. And Giles from Buffy. Isn't it also? Do you recall that? You know, Anthony Anthony Head. He was the. Well, I don't watch Buffy, but he was he the like her mentor, the British guy. Yeah, that was, okay. the librarian. Yeah. yeah, he was the watcher, is what they yeah. called him there. But he didn't have the big head like Uatu. I'm still waiting to see a watcher. You know, I want to see a watcher in a Marvel movie. Maybe Infinity Gauntlet. I. You know, that's. Now, what do you think they're going to name the movies? Do you think it's going to be the Infinity Gauntlet and the Infinity War? I don't think it'll be called Infinity Gauntlet. I think it may be Infinity War Part 1 and 2. No, they've already said they weren't going to do them as Infinity War 1 and 2. They decided to change them, but they haven't uh, said what yet. I don't know. Infinity War, maybe. I, don't, I just don't see them calling it the Infinity Gauntlet. They could. I mean, uh, I mean, I kind of like the fact they're not going to split it. That's Okay, so these next couple months. Now, we've got um, some – well, do we want to talk about what we're going to do next? We kind of hit it out. We can. We're we just won't maybe won't tell who may our who our guest stars may be. Uh, we are going for next month because it's the thirty fifth anniversary of Raiders of the Lost Ark. We are going to do Indiana Jones. Or is it the continuing adventures of Indiana Jones? Yes, I believe uh, so. Issue one, which is writ- written by Byrne and layouts by Byrne. Is that correct? Uh, no, I thought it was, is it scripted by Michelini? He's scripted, and he just does the layouts, and then well, Burn does the layouts, and Terry Austin does does the finishing. finishing. Yeah, yeah. So we are going to try to get a couple of veteran tutu freakers to come on and talk about that book with us, hopefully. Uh, But that may be after uh, Freak Fest, which is in June, when a bunch of us are going to New York. So, uh, alas, Brian cannot join us, so we are going to miss him. Yeah, I'm sorry. Further no. Adventures of Indiana Jones Further. is what it was called, yeah. And, um, golly. Yeah, no, I I, I, I want to get out to New York, and it's just not just not going to work for us on that. Um, do we know what our next Star Trek story is? I don't think we do. I You picked ca- this one. I picked this one, so you can pick the next one. We're, we're kind of limited to what we can 
there's not a ton of stuff, but there's a lot of Fometis. We may cover a lot more of the Fometis. Well, I think I want to I want to go back to crew. I want to talk. I want to I want to look at number one. You know, because yeah, you know, yeah. we can, we can kind of we can cover the first issue. We can kind of cover it as a whole. Yeah, I, I think that would that would be a good one. Well, you know, again, I'd like to hear what you guys think. Uh, you know, if 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 you have a particular Trek story that you'd like us to cover, um, you know, we've we've uh, already done you know the uh, a Romulan one, and uh, we've done of course the, the you know the first Fumetti, Strange New Worlds. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, what, what what do you guys think? And uh, just let us know. Let us know on Facebook or shoot us an email at uh, gotta get burned at gmail.com or, you know, put a review on iTunes. Yeah. Give us, give us, give us a review. If, you know, if you, if you like the show, uh, uh, I know that does help find the show. I, I mean, I don't know how that works, but the more reviews you get, the more it helps people, I guess you pop up in a search list somewhere. It somehow it helps people find the show. And yeah. Yeah, you know, there's something that I wanted to say earlier while we were still on the subject of, of Star Trek. Um, when they showed Kirk with that hologram of the Enterprise, no bloody A, B, C, or D. <laughs> that right there is my favorite Enterprise out, out of out of all of them. I think I, I even like that over the the original series model. I I love the motion picture model um, that that you know that came out, and of course I. I was one of those people that bawled like a little baby in Star Trek Three when they blew it up. Well, which that because you had some history there, you had seen yeah. this, even though it was only through three movies. You still know it was the same ship that you had watched in all seventy-nine episodes of the original series. Which I think, when the it seems like the 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 trailers for the new Abrams film that's coming out looks like they're gonna trash the Enterprise, which of course they've already trashed it pretty good the first two films. But if they blow that ship up, you're not going to have the same emotional resonance that you had in Search for Spock. Because it's, no, it's it's going to be an eye roll. Not yeah. again. Yeah, you they, know, they haven't earned it. They have not earned no. it. No, and I don't. I don't think that they'll they'll blow up the Enterprise. I think they'll damage it just enough to refit it so it looks like the motion picture almost. Yeah, I wish they would. Or a, a, an really update like to the motion picture. Yeah, type. I I, I kind of like the design of the Enterprise that they've got on, in the movie, but. I think sometimes when they're doing it on screen, they're not giving the scale uh, enough of... You don't get the feeling of just how massive this ship is sometimes. Now, when they showed it coming out of the ocean and and into darkness, that got lost. You should have sat there and seen this huge freaking ship coming out of the water, but for some reason it was lost. In the first movie that they made in 09, when it was trying to get pulled into the singularity... You couldn't tell any scale. It looked like a little Hot Wheel that uh, was trying to... They pulled back too far. They, yeah, they pulled back too far. And you didn't get this sense of the, the scope that that ship was holding 430 people. Well, you, know? you, you need the uh, the 20-minute uh, beauty shot that they have in motion picture. The motion picture, yeah. Where you're just, just lovingly just going all around all the uh, surface and all the edges. And you get to just get a... That's, of course, that they did that because you really couldn't tell in the... TV show, you didn't get a sense of scale. And now this one, and granted that model is also 11 feet long, but uh, you got a sense of just how massive, as you said, this uh, this ship is. Now, did they do all those beauty shots as like filler stuff for when they had it on TV? Because that was supposed to be the, a, a TV series before they decided to make it a movie, thanks to Star Wars. I don't, I don't think any film was actually shot when it was still 
being thought of as a TV show. I think they had built uh, some of the props, and they I think they built the model, obviously. I don't know yeah. if that – at that point, I don't think Robert Wise was uh, was involved, and I don't think Doug – I don't know if Doug Tremble was involved, so I don't know if any of those those shots were already – they might have been storyboarded, but I don't know if they would actually uh, – any of those were in the can. So, that, so as you said, that would – uh, they certainly reused it again in Star Trek Two, which why not? You've got the footage, use it again. Yeah, though they did recolor things, didn't they? Didn't the wouldn't the navigational deflector like orange in the first one and blue for the? Or am I think am I getting that backwards now? I because uh, I've watched I've watched Wrath of Khan you know a, a billion times. I've only watched the motion picture. I'd say probably twenty or thirty. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> But uh, it's all blending together now. Yeah. That's that's uh, older age, not yeah. old age, but older age. Old age. Well, much like this uh, episode is blending to uh, to three hours. So why don't we kind of wrap wow. things up? I know. Yeah, because we got a long day tomorrow. We do. We're helping helping someone, a friend, move. The uh, we're we're about to see the actual crap bag of the son of Cthulhu. Uh, <laughs> helping our friend Mike Carlisle, blogger extraordinaire, as he uh, moves on to a new chapter in life. And then, and uh, I also want to remind you guys, if you haven't been listening, uh, my wife and I have joined Scott McGregor and Serotonin on the Five Minute Freaks for Fear the Walking Dead weekly on Two True Freaks. And so uh, you can find us there. Go just go to Two Two Freaks. You're gonna find if you you're gonna find something you like there. There's so, so many, many cool shows on there, and I I I tell you, I love Garage Sale Gloat. Um, there's something comforting about that show, and I, I don't know if it's the sound of the car in the background, the Gloat Mobile, as Chris calls it, uh, Chris yeah. Honeywell. Uh, you know, like he and Scott McGregor, of course, uh, doing hitting the the garage sale circuit up there in New York. And just the, the stuff that they find. And, you know, I've, I've trolled some garage sales here, and, and I, I've had one of those great finds with the record collection. Christopher was looking for action figures, and so we go to a garage sale, uh, several garage sales one, one morning. And this one we pull up to, they had this wood crate full of about 120 record record albums. And, yeah, $10, $10 for the entire collection. We're talking – uh, Beach Boys and Rolling Stones and Aerosmith and uh, Otis Redding and Marvin Gaye and just all sorts of records and then a big bag of 45s. And I, I said, how much for the records? And the lady goes, uh, yeah, $10. And I was thinking she meant $10 in an album because they were all great albums. And I said, okay, I guess I want – and she goes, no, no, the whole thing. <laughs> And so I'm just like, sure. And, and she goes, you can have that. You can have the crate too. So I uh, take the crate. And then as I go to the car, she runs up to me, you forgot your bag. And there's a bag <laughs> of about 30, 45s of singles. So that's the kind of stuff that garage sailors, you know, diehard garage sailors love to find those. those that, kind of yeah, that's, discoveries. that's the master find. And that's just, that made my day. That made my day. Uh, but, you know, it took me I, over a year before I actually went out and bought a turntable. And I was just listening to um, uh, Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, uh, Funeral for a Friend, and Love Lies Bleeding uh, earlier. Just awesome sound on a record player. I, I forgot how great uh, final, final sounds. Uh, every pop 
was just like, oh, that's great. <laughs> well, why don't we uh, sound off and sign out? You got anything else you want to? No, I think I think we're good. Okay, I mean, we're good? Uh, we've got uh, you know a pretty full docket over these next couple months, so uh, looks like we're going to have some fun, and and you know we're, we'll be able to update on things. I don't think we've got any emails that we want to cover right now. We can cover them on cover our regular regular show. show. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, for third degree burn, I'm Brian Hughes, and I am Tim Elliott. Bugs, bots, and babes. Yes, I love this. I love I, this show. I, I he's done three episodes, I think, and I've already, <laughs> I've already shamelessly written to him and said, "Hey, if you need any guests, uh, I'm gonna, you know, stick my foot in the door and say I would love to come on your show because those movies are right in my wheelhouse." Oh, really? Oh, I love anything 50s, 60s, uh, sci-fi, all that kind of stuff. I'm a huge, and he's already covered them. I know, and it was my awesome. all-time favorite uh, films. But he, uh, I wrote him an email, and he said, "Hey, you know, listen, some movies you might want to, you know, might want to listen to." So, uh, I encourage anybody if they like that kind of, if they like, if they like Earth Destruction Directive, or if they like Tales of Horror, the horror podcast that Jason has recently been uh, brought onto, and he's he guest star a lot of times on um, Earth Destruction Directive, Luke's uh, Kaiju Godzilla podcast. Then I think you'll like this type of this type of podcast. Yeah, I'm still trying to find a way of tying. Uh, maybe if I ever do a John Byrne commission, maybe I'll see, see if I can get him to do the Gargantuas. You know, Sandra oh. and Gyra. That would be awesome because the Gargantuas are by far my favorite kaiju ever. And even my son shares uh, a love for that. And my son has asked if we could sit there and sit down and record a commentary on War of the Gargantuas. And, I, I, you know, we're going to have to do that here sometime and just. You know, I I, I want to get a really really I, I want to get the Blu-ray that they that they put out of it. I have the I, I've got the DVD, but I really I really want the Blu-ray because my my DVD is yeah. being used so much it's a little scratch and so it's it stops in spots, and that's because my son loves it. <laughs> is it yours the uh, Blu-ray with is it Rodan? That the, the DVD set was the one with Rodan. So yeah. you got yeah, it was a two disc set. And it, and it had the uh, uh, American version, the Saperstein translation, and then it had the original Japanese cut on the other side. And I prefer the American one, even though the music on the Japanese one is really, really awesome. But there's a site that has a lot of hard-to-find uh, kaiju films. It's where I actually have the Blu-ray of Godzilla Returns, a.k.a. Godzilla 1985, in the original yeah. Japanese. 
and they're pretty reasonably priced. And I ha I bought that, and I bought Gargantua's on Blu-ray. So yeah, didn't didn't Luke put out a thing today saying they're getting ready to release that? Yeah, the Kraken or Kraken is releasing uh, ads. The Return of Godzilla. Right. Yeah, that uh, Jason uh, actually posted that on his Destruction that. Directive today on Facebook. And so that's so that's Godzilla 1985, right? That that's what that's what's called here. The the one Godzilla 1985 has the Raymond Burr footage added back in or added in ah. when they released it here. The Japanese do, does not, and uh, there's a little difference in uh, there's a little difference in the way the Russian ship and the nuke gets launched is treated a little differently in the Japanese version as opposed to the American. You know, I have never seen it. I never saw Godzilla 85. And fact of the matter is I didn't watch the King Kong uh, uh, that came out at that time. What, what was that? King Kong Returns with Linda Hamilton? <laughs> That's one you gotta do a commentary on. I've seen that what? movie and it stinks. Well, how's our boy doing? Easy, big guy. Hold on. They're approximately 50 feet tall, wearing their birthday suits. God, look at the size of him. Did you say your beast is a female? He was trying to get to the female. biggest hero is back and he is not happy king kong lives <laughs> it's terrible i mean yeah. but it's, it's terrible in a good way you know yeah it's I, I, that's what i hear that's what i hear but i have never ever ever watched that one um because you know, by that time, I was uh, disillusioned by the man in suit, um, you know, stuff that was being done because mm -hmm. uh, well, I, I hadn't seen good stuff. I mean, I, I love the 77 Dino De Laurentiis King Kong, you know, with Jeff Bridges and yeah. Charles Grodin and Jessica Lange. I love that the, one uh, as, as a kid. I went and saw that at the theater like four or five times. It's just a blast. Um. The Godzilla, if you haven't seen Godzilla 85 or Godzilla Returns, it's it's actually a very well-made movie. It It is treated more, it's more serious. They, they take him back to the darker tone of the original yeah. uh, uh, Gozira. And he, they've scaled up, one, the suits, the suits better, and they have an animatronic head for the close-ups. And they've scaled, and because of the, the, the skyscrapers, uh, I can't remember if he's in Tokyo or if he is. The skyscrapers are taller compared to him, so you get a, a, a much grander sense of scale with him, yeah. As opposed to the other movies, so I, I I can't recommend it enough. It's it's a well, I, I definitely want to see it now. You know, as far as Christopher goes, he likes it when Godzilla's the hero, and that's what made the 2014 Godzilla great. Is that Godzilla was actually the hero of it? Mm -hmm. right. um, yeah. So so it's like. 
if if Godzilla's the bad guy, like he was yeah, apparently was done in, in '85, and um, you know a lot a lot of the other stuff after that, uh, I don't I don't know how you know how he's going to take that. Now, uh, Final Wars is one of those that that we have and we've watched many many times, but we only watch it from the point where Godzilla starts fighting all the different kaiju, where where he's kind of awakened out of the eyes. Yeah, when he's awakened, that's exactly where we start it. Whenever we watch it, you know. I, oh. I think true, and I don't want to speak for anybody here, but I think serious kaiju fans do not consider that to be a well-made movie. I, I know a lot of other kaiju podcasts. I heard that kind of. Um, well, I, I say you know the thing is is like it's not a well-made movie, but it is fun to watch Godzilla fighting all those things. The comedy of it when yeah. he's when he is sitting there fighting against. Uh, uh, oh man, what is it? The one from Godzilla Raids again. Angulus. Uh, yeah, when when he does the little soccer. Yeah. Block there, the goalie block, and what he, you know, just that, that that's hilarious. And of course, uh, King Caesar, which I'd never seen King Caesar before, so I thought that was fun. Now I, I've got the other movie with King Caesar in it um, now, and we finally got to watch. I guess it was Destroy All Monsters. No, Destroy All Monsters was in '68, where they had all the. The big melee, and they had the aliens. Yeah, uh, right. King Caesar is the not the cockroach aliens, but the ape aliens. Oh, and they have Titanosaurus and Mechagodzilla. I believe that is. Is that Terror Mechagodzilla? I think it is the first first one, which is Terror Mechagodzilla. Yeah, yeah. There's two yeah, of those back to back. What's funny is for for my entire life growing up, I don't know maybe it's because it was the way it was released here in the states. I always thought. Godzilla vs. Megalon was the the final film before they ceased production. And it's not. It's the third to the last because they had that and then they had the two Mechagodzilla films come out and then they stopped production before they uh, brought it back when uh, you know, Godzilla in 1985. Yeah, now I had um, Godzilla vs. Megalon on VHS and I watched it once and all I remember was being disgusted by how Godzilla would propel himself through the air the to fly, fight the, the flying kick yeah yeah the flying kick and i stopped watching it because you know it's like your later years I, I it's like someone starts talking about jet jaguar and gigan and i just don't remember them in it at all i like jet jaguar well the you know the story behind that was that was not originally to be a godzilla film i, I can't remember the other monster it was going to be and at the last minute they put godzilla in that's why he's not in it that much really it's more of a jet jaguar uh, yeah, film. He gets a lot more screen time. And see, I don't remember Jet Jaguar at all. And the the thing is, you know, for me with kaiju films, now I loved Ultraman as a kid, and I've got the Ultraman DVD set of the. the I guess it's season. just the, the first season of it, and and so Christopher and I, you know, watch that from time to time. Um, but I like the idea of uh, a true, you know. Uh, man type, you know, maybe homunculus, whatever you want to call it, fighting against the giant monsters. That's why I think why I like the the gargantuas is because they're you know fairly managed as opposed to you know Godzilla basically being more of dinosaur lizard kind of thing and well, you, you know get all more, the various types. Yeah, you get more. I think the, actually the suit actor from that played Godzilla during the the Showa series is not Gaia, but maybe he's not. Um, yeah, he's Gyra. 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 He's Gyra. Yeah. So it's much more, you get more uh, expression because you can actually see his eyes. You can yes. see more of his face. And they're scaled down. If you notice, they are not nearly as big 
and no, they're only Godzilla. supposed to be about about fifty feet tall, whereas yeah. Godzilla can be anywhere between one hundred and fifty to three hundred feet tall. So that scene when he first comes out of the ocean, and yeah, on the airport, that is, I, I will say that uh, War of the Gargantuas is, is it's a it's a frightening film. I mean, it's it. Well, it, yeah, it's, it's a horror film. It's, yeah, it's very suspenseful. It's it's uh, it's got yeah. some kind of horrific imagery. It's yes. uh it's yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of you know scared me when I was a kid when they would show them on the uh, we'd have blocks of the uh, three o'clock movie and it was always you know Monday yeah. through Friday and they would play yep. uh, or the Gargantuas Godzilla's Revenge um, the Attack of the Mushroom People mm-hmm. I think I think that was one of them and um, there was the one with uh, Monster Zero that's uh, Ghidra you know and and that's uh, Godzilla. Uh, that's and Rodan. That's uh, Godzilla versus Monster Zero, or Godzilla yeah. versus the Astro Monster. Right. And so is Godzilla and Rodan, and was was Mothra a part of that? No, it was just uh, they they just grabbed Godzilla and Rodan. Yeah. And took him to their planet to, to defeat Ghidra. Then he you know pulled a switch around us and brought him back here to attack us. So that's uh, that one. Well, that one follows right behind Ghidra, the three-headed monster, which was his first appearance. Yeah, so are we going to just uh, cut this whole part and send it off to Luke? <laughs> hey, Luke, we did a show for you here. <laughs> this has become oh, a kaiju film. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to Gotta get burned at gmail.com. That's G O T T A G E T B Y R N E D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. If you're interested in any of the books we cover in the show, just head over to tutufreaks.com and use the Amazon link to shop. This doesn't cost any extra, but it really helps support the shows. Until next time, this has been Third Degree Burn.